This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 185th edition of the program. Today is Friday, March 22nd, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube contributors, all of which signed up just this last week to support the show or increased their monthly pledge. And that includes Aaron Holloway, Adam Wright, Brandon, Brian D. Walters III, Daniel S., Daphne and Alan Brule, David Wenske, Gage Jerome, Jamie Crossland, Jared Lind, Ken Fuller, Ken Michael Jerome, Quadir Ali, Reed Anderson, Sally S.O., and Trevor Thomas. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the podcast, you can do so by visiting humanistreport.com slash support, by clicking join underneath our YouTube videos, or by going to patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get into the actual episode itself. This is what we talked about this week on the Humanist Report podcast. We first kicked off the week talking about Donald Trump's tone-deaf response to the white nationalist terror attack in New Zealand, Joe Biden's claim that he's the most progressive candidate out of every other Democratic Party presidential contender, and we'll talk about Beto's first-day fundraising totals, as well as a college student who grilled him for his lack of policy substance. Additionally, we'll talk about Elizabeth Warren's CNN Town Hall, Trump's love fest with Brazil's fascist president Jair Bolsonaro, Ben Shapiro and Laura Ingram's unhinged attack on the left, Fox News' attempt at anti-Bernie comedy, a Republican's breathtakingly stupid ad, and The Atlantic's attempt to promote a false narrative about a Bernie Sanders staffer by literally photoshopping a tweet, and we'll also get to the specifics about Beto O'Rourke's first day fundraising. And finally, we close the week with a discussion about John Hickenlooper's porn experience with his mother, Nikki Haley's ignorance towards the U.S. healthcare system, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's takedown of a Wall Street executive's attack on the Green New Deal. That's what we have on the agenda. Hopefully, you guys will enjoy the program. So as you all know, over the weekend, a white nationalist terrorist in Christchurch, New Zealand, went into two different mosques and murdered 50 people, and there were dozens more who were injured. Now, in his manifesto, which is 70-plus pages long, he credits individuals like Candace Owens for radicalizing him, and he says that Donald Trump is a symbol of renewed white identity. And it's horrific. It really speaks to just how problematic white nationalism and white supremacy has become, not just here at home, but around the globe. This is evidence that this is a huge, growing threat globally. And a lot of this discussion, you know, about this incident is how culpable are individuals 
like Candace Owens and Donald Trump. And I don't necessarily think anybody is contending that they are directly responsible, but can you say that they are indirectly responsible? Is that a reasonable conversation that we can have? Not only do I think it's reasonable, I think it's crucial. And I'm not necessarily wanting to focus so much on Candace Owens, more so than Donald Trump, who is a global leader. What he says especially holds weight. So this incident is incredibly heartbreaking, and my heart goes out to every single victim and their family, because I couldn't imagine hearing that somebody I know or love went into a mosque where they theoretically should be the safest and was murdered by a white nationalist terrorist, I would be devastated. And I don't even know how I would be able to process that, process that level of cruelty. Now, it's not just the victims, because I know that Muslims around the world were really shaken by this, because that's the way that I felt as an LGBTQ American when I saw the Pulse nightclub shooting. It really shook me to my core. You know, when you're already dealing with marginalization and discrimination and you see someone open fire against your community specifically because of your identity, it does something to you psychologically that makes it difficult to process. You just kind of want to run away and hide. So my heart goes out to the families of the victims and the victims themselves, of course, and also Muslims around the world who are feeling this, who are feeling the ripples of this terrorist attack on their community specifically because it sucks. It's it's hard to get over. It's hard to process. And I was even debating talking about this because I usually don't talk about tragedies because I never feel as if I'm adding anything new to the conversation. I'm just trying to process it like everything else. And you can't, you can't, fabricate words that will make people feel better in this situation. We all just feel shitty and it sucks. But I do think it's important to talk about this specifically because when it comes to the conversation of who is and isn't to blame, I think this is something we do need to grapple with and talk about, especially given that we have a president who traffics in hate nonstop. Now, what I do find admirable is that the prime minister of New Zealand actually is pledging to take action and pass gun reform, which is absolutely necessary. And that's certainly one element of the conversation in terms of taking action. But another element of the discussion is who can we blame? Can we blame Candace Owens, Donald Trump, or even PewDiePie since the shooter told people to subscribe to PewDiePie? Now, whenever this happens, you see people kind of lash out because, I mean, of course it's the case that Candace Owens never said, hey, you know, Muslims are a threat to you then you should take action. Nobody's saying that she said that, but what we are discussing is who's part of the problem. And I do think that all of these people are part of the problem, and Donald Trump is specifically culpable because he's the president, because he has that bully pulpit, and he chooses to demonize Muslims. He has a Muslim ban and individuals who are already marginalized, like immigrants. And what this does is this leads to violence. No, he's not saying Muslims are bad and they're a threat to you, therefore take action. But that's what these people who are psychopaths will logically deduce 
from his own rhetoric. It has violent consequences. Now, certainly, I do want to be careful about blaming politicians, and I want to emphasize that I'm not that I'm not saying that you know Donald Trump is directly culpable here, because as a Bernie Sanders supporter, I was devastated when I learned that a Bernie supporter had opened fire at Republicans at a baseball event, and he shot Representative Steve Scalise. And when the media and Republicans tried to pin that blame on Bernie, I defended him. Because Bernie Sanders would never encourage violence. He doesn't traffic in hate. However, in this situation, when it comes to Donald Trump repeatedly trying to tell us what a threat Muslims are and that we need a a shutdown on Muslims entering and exiting the country until we can figure out what's going on, repeatedly demonizing immigrants, I think that it is crucial to acknowledge that, yes, he is indirectly responsible here. Because... This is what happens. If you constantly try to get people to think that a particular group of people and their identity specifically poses a threat to you directly, and it's not just that they're bad people, it's that they threaten you, well, what do you expect these people who are low-information voters are going to do? They're going to think, oh, well, Donald Trump is telling me Muslims are bad, and they pose a threat to me, so... I'm justified if I want to harm them. That's what they think. That's what psychologically is happening here. So I do think it's important that we talk about how Donald Trump is indirectly responsible. I'm not saying he's directly responsible, but I think it's reasonable to say he's absolutely stoking the flames of hate and he's unquestionably part of the problem. And that is demonstrated when you look at his response to this. Because he was asked if white supremacy is a threat, and he downplayed it. Today, white nationalism is a rising threat around the world. I don't really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. I don't know enough about it yet. They're just learning about the person and the people involved. Uh, but it's a, certainly a terrible thing, terrible thing. The killer in this tragic incident wrote a manifesto, apparently. Did you see that? Apparently, he I did not name. see it. I did not see it. But uh, I think it's a horrible event. It's a horrible thing. I saw it early in the morning when uh, I looked at what was happening in New Zealand. I just spoke, as you know, to the prime minister. I think it's a horrible, disgraceful thing and a horrible act. Okay, thank you all very much. Thank you. So make no mistake about it, he can't say that white nationalism is a rising threat because then he'd be inadvertently admitting that he is, in part, responsible for the rise of white nationalism. And he knows that what he's doing is problematic because in that same press conference, he used a white supremacist talking point to describe the situation that's happening at the border. And he admits it. Last month, more than 76,000 illegal migrants arrived at our border. We're on track for a million illegal aliens to rush our borders. People hate the word invasion, but that's what it is. It's an invasion of drugs and criminals and people. We have no idea who they are, but we capture them because border security is so good. But they're put in a very bad position and we're bursting at the seams. Literally bursting at the seams. So he knows that the specific word invasion is a white supremacist talking point. But he used it anyway. And this was in the same press conference when he wouldn't acknowledge the threat of white supremacy. And it's because 
he's partially culpable in the rise of white supremacy. I'm not saying he catalyzed the rise of white supremacy, but he's certainly riding the wave and he wrote it right into the White House. So understand that you don't have to directly tell your supporters to harm these brown people who are invading our country. These aren't things that you have to directly say in order to incite hatred and violence against them. But if you are adding to this narrative that someone who is different than you is not only inferior to you, but they pose a threat to you personally, then you are in fact culpable, at least indirectly, when these shootings take place. And this is something the far right does openly now, very regularly. Candace Owens fear-mongered about France being a Muslim-majority country in 40 years. Jordan Peterson took a picture with someone who was wearing a shirt that said he was a proud Islamophobe, and he took this picture about a month before the shooting happened in New Zealand. The point is that if you traffic and hate on a regular basis and you are constantly fear-mongering about these communities with a very specific identity, then you don't have to tell them to incite violence. They're going to do that on their own because they're going to connect the dots based on what you told them. Now, What's particularly troubling about Donald Trump is that he doesn't just vilify constantly Muslims and immigrants, but he also has encouraged violence. And just this week, before, actually last week, before the shooting took place in New Zealand, he raised the specter of his supporters committing violence if they didn't get what they wanted politically. As Mary Poppenfuss explains, President Donald Trump warned in an interview that his supporters could, quote, play tough and make things very, very bad if they reach a certain point. He cited the police, military, and bikers for Trump as his backers. He didn't define what that certain point might be in the Breitbart interview published Tuesday, but the implication was that his supporters would stand for a limited amount of political decisions that they opposed until the tough people made things very, very bad. Violence by a military opposed to political decisions would be a coup. Quote, I have the support of the police, the support of the military, and the support of bikers for Trump, he said. Quote, I have the tough people, but they don't play it tough until they go to a certain point, and then it would be very bad, very bad. Now, we all need to understand that this rhetoric is extremely dangerous because he's technically inadvertently encouraging violence while still giving himself plausible deniability. What? I didn't say that my supporters should commit acts of violence. I'm just saying that maybe they will if we don't get the border wall I'm telling them we need in order to stop this invasion of brown people entering the country. And let's all remember that Donald Trump has directly incited violence before, back on the campaign trail. I certainly don't incite violence. Knock the crap out of them. like to punch him in the face. I don't condone violence, and uh, I don't talk about violence. Well, I would have done well, but I would have been boom, 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 I'll beat that. I don't know if I'll do the fighting myself or if other people will. Maybe he should have been roughed up because it was absolutely disgusting what he was doing. If you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. Try not to hurt him. If you do, I'll defend you in court. Don't worry about it. In the good old days, this doesn't happen because they used to treat them very, very rough. And when they protested once, you know, they would not do it again so easily. We've become weak. We've become weak. And you know what? The audience swung back. 
and I thought it was very, very appropriate. The audience hit back, and that's what we need a little bit more of. Now, part of the problem and part of the reason it takes so long is nobody wants to hurt each other anymore, right? I don't know if I would have done well, but I would have been out there fighting, folks. I don't know if I would have done well, but I would have been boom, 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 I'll beat that. Do you plan on paying for the legal fees of this older gentleman in North Carolina who sucker punched the protester? From what I understand, he was sick, sticking a certain finger up in the air. And, 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 and that is a uh, terrible thing to do and in that, front of somebody that, frankly, wants to see America made great again. It's possible you could help him with legal fees if this man needs it. I've actually instructed my people to look into it, yes. So now that he's the president, he's since toned it down? But understand that he's doing two things, and he's trying to separate these things. On one hand, he is constantly vilifying communities who are already vulnerable in the United States. Muslims and immigrants. But he's also encouraging violence. Now, he's not saying you should do violence and punch these communities I'm fear-mongering about. But what you're essentially doing is laying the groundwork for these types of white supremacist terrorist attacks to take place. Now, are you directly responsible? No, because you didn't say go do violence, but you're just essentially putting it out there and allowing your supporters who are already predisposed to fascism and white nationalist talking points to take action and do something violent. That's what's being encouraged and Trump is unquestionably part of the problem. Now, another thing that I want to talk about is before the election, he was very popular among a specific crowd of people who overtly discriminate against marginalized communities, neo-Nazis. And in their own words in this next clip, they're going to explain why they supported Donald Trump in 2016. We have been seeing really ever since uh, Barack Obama first won election in late 2008, a growth in groups uh, on the radical right. In 2008, we went from about 150 uh, so-called patriot groups, anti-government uh, radical groups, uh, to something like 1,360 groups in 2012. In the last year, though, uh, Donald Trump has added fuel to that fire in a very big way. Al Gore and George Bush and people like and Mitt Romney and these people, they're all the same. You know, they're all the same type of candidates. So it's, it's pretty interesting this year to see something a little bit different. So. You know, we, we support those nationalist principles like closing the borders and things of that nature. So uh, we do support those things, but we're not going to come out and endorse them. Donald Trump wants to bring back jobs to America. Give dignity to the American worker. It's not that Trump is telling these groups what to think. Uh, they uh, have, you know, had their own white supremacist ideology for many decades now. What Trump is doing is legitimizing. I came here to speak on behalf of Donald Trump. I've never met the man, but I can tell that he has nothing but the best interests of this country at heart. 
So what Donald Trump does is he takes the feelings of hatred and fear that they already feel and he legitimizes them. When he says, really, it's the immigrants who are to blame for your economic woes and really it is Muslims who are to blame for your physical insecurity, he legitimizes their feelings of hatred and irrational feelings of fear. And this is exactly why white supremacy is on the rise. Because even if you aren't necessarily a white supremacist, well, if you're a Donald Trump supporter, then maybe you hear what he's saying and think, well, it's just common sense. But inadvertently, you're being primed to think in a white supremacist way. So his response to New Zealand was to condemn the massacre, but espouse the same white supremacist rhetoric during the same press conference that fans the flames of white supremacy. So what we see here is Donald Trump taking a disgusting stand, saying this is horrible, but then using rhetoric that he knows is white supremacist rhetoric. And I know that he was talking about an invasion of immigrants, but you've got to understand all of these marginalized communities that are targets for white nationalists, this all, it just, it just stokes the fans of hate and white supremacy. And Donald Trump should be absolutely ashamed of himself for what is obviously a detestable response. But getting back to the tragedy, my heart absolutely goes out to everyone who was affected by this, both directly and indirectly. And I think that as allies to these marginalized communities, we have to be doing more to make sure that they are safe and they feel protected at a time in a political climate where bigotry against them is not just rampant, but people are trying to find ways to justify it. That's really troubling. It's, it's horrifying. So to kind of wrap it all up, is Donald Trump and individuals on the far right directly responsible? No. And I don't think anyone who's serious is saying that, but they're indirectly guilty here. Because when you constantly fan the flames of hate and traffic and Islamophobia and bigotry and xenophobia, then you can expect these types of things to happen. And even if this took place in New Zealand and Donald Trump is the U.S. president, you've got to understand that as a global leader, it's especially problematic. He's ha He has this responsibility that nobody else in the world has. And yet you see how irresponsible he's being with his bully pulpit. I don't know what the conclusion is other than we have to point this out and try to combat it, but certainly Donald Trump should be ashamed of himself. But we all know he has no shame. So um, it's just all around, it's sad. It's, you know, my heart goes out to the, to, um, the victims. It seemed like as early as 2017, Joe Biden was doing everything in his power to differentiate himself from Bernie Sanders. He, as One Nation article put it, was trying to be the anti-Bernie going into 2020 because he knows that Bernie Sanders has the progressive wing of the Democratic Party on lock, so there's really no point in him even trying to win them over. And if you just look at it from a strategic point of view, I can see how that makes sense. However, he recently kind of did a 180, and all of a sudden, he's now trying to convince us that he's not only progressive, but he's the most progressive out of everyone. I know I get criticized. I'm told I get criticized by the new left. 
I have the most progressive record of anybody running for the United — anybody who would run. I didn't mean — Did anybody who would run? So I don't <laughs> — I really don't know how to even respond to that because I know that he knows that that is false. It's demonstrably untrue. A quick five-minute Google search will lead you to Joe Biden's horrific record. Now, why is Joe Biden specifically not progressive, even if I'm preaching to the choir? But for anyone who doesn't know, why is he not progressive? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, he lacks progressive policy positions currently. And second of all, he doesn't have a progressive policy record. So let's talk about his record. Just going over some of the worst things he's done, he let his colleagues berate Anita Hill and embarrass Anita Hill. He wrote and voted for the 1994 crime bill. He voted to gut welfare. He voted to repeal Glass-Steagall. He voted for NAFTA. He voted for the Iraq War. He voted for the Patriot Act. He voted for a border wall in 2006. He spoke out against net neutrality before in 2006 and 2008, and he has not clarified his position as far as we know. And when it comes to his current policy positions, he doesn't support Medicare for all. He doesn't support breaking up the big banks. He doesn't support free college. He hasn't said anything to my knowledge about the Green New Deal. He frequently praises Republicans who are a psychopathic death cult. He is incredibly creepy and doesn't know how to respect the boundaries of women. You can see exhibits A, B, and C. Now, on top of that, he doesn't understand why the situation in America is so so dismal for the working class because even if he acknowledges that income inequality is a problem, well, he's unable to identify who's the cause of that underlying problem. I love Bernie, but I'm not Bernie Sanders. I don't think 500 billionaires are the reason why we're in trouble. We have not seen this huge concentration of wealth. And the folks at the top aren't bad guys. I get in trouble in my party when I say wealthy Americans are just as patriotic as poor folks. I found no distinction. I really haven't. But this gap is yawning. It's gaping. And it's having the effect of pulling us apart. You see the politics of it. So he acknowledges on one hand that income inequality is in fact a problem. However, he's trying to avoid the fact and the harsh reality that American oligarchs have been essentially buying off politicians to do their bidding and rig the entire system in favor of them and against all of us. So if you don't identify both the problem and the cause of the problem, then you're not going to be able to adequately apply a solution to the problem. And what he's doing there is pandering to the rich who are potential donors to him. So that's why Joe Biden isn't progressive. And furthermore, when it comes to all of the issues facing millennials and, you know, the future generation, Gen Z after millennials, well, he doesn't actually take their concerns seriously. In fact, he condescendingly talked down about millennials when he, you know, heard about us complaining about our issues. The younger generation now tells me how tough things are. Give me a break. No, no. I have no empathy for it. Give me a break. Because here's the deal, guys. We decided we were going to change the world. And we did. Now, to give you some more context, 
in that clip, he was talking about how, look, my generation, we had our own fair share of problems too. There, there was the Vietnam War. There was the civil rights era. But you know what we did? We didn't just sit around and complain about it. We actually took action. But I'm sure that when you were taking action, the generation before you, Joe, probably took what you were protesting as complaining as well. So what you're doing is likely what was done to you when you were once a young person. And also, young people today have a very unique set of problems that you never had to deal with and you couldn't be empathetic towards. So even if we have our own wars and our own civil rights issues that we have to deal with, we have a very unique set of problems, economic as well as social problems. But he doesn't want to identify that because, look, we all have problems, so this is just part of life. It's par for the course. If you're growing up, there's going to be issues, so stop complaining, millennials. Actually take action. But we are taking action. That's what we're doing specifically. And Bernie Sanders is catalyzing this movement that is largely comprised of young voters. So he's trying to downplay our legitimate concerns about this rigged economy and then he's trying to pander to rich people simultaneously if you do all of these things you're just not a progressive it's demonstrably false so i honestly am puzzled by his sudden 180 here because if you're going to be the anti-bernie strategically that makes sense just don't piss off progressives and poke the wounds you know what i mean but he's all of a sudden trying to now say that he is progressive it makes no sense. So when it comes to Joe Biden's supposed progressivism, he doesn't have a single leg to stand on. However, think about this. If he says something like that, how would you respond if you were on the opposite side of the political spectrum? Here's what Donald Trump said in response to Joe Biden's speech there. He tweeted out, Joe Biden got tongue-tied over the weekend when he was unable to properly deliver a very simple line about his decision to run for president. Get used to it. Another low IQ individual. So that is a very idiotic <laughs> reason to criticize Joe Biden. When I see Joe Biden, I come at him from the left and I say, no, you're not progressive. Here's reasons X, Y, and Z. But if you're Donald Trump and you're a moron, then you have to criticize him because he got tongue-tied and misspoke and completely avoid the substance. And it's because Donald Trump himself has no substance and he's projecting here. We all know that he's a low IQ individual and he misspeaks all the time. Tim Apple happened last week and he tried to pretend as if he was doing that on purpose. So I don't get why you would try to criticize Joe Biden for that reason, but it just kind of shows that if we have this scenario where it's really the worst case scenario where you have Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, there will be no substance whatsoever like there was in 2016. So I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that we get someone like Bernie Sanders as the nominee because I'm sick of these politicians trying to skirt around the issues that we care about. Just hit us with policy nonstop. Don't brag about your progressive credentials that don't exist. Actually, say what you want to do now. That's progressive. That would improve our lives. So, you know, the, the lack of substance policy-wise that we're already seeing in 2020 is very troubling to me. And now with the rise of Beto O'Rourke, who has launched his 2020 campaign with zero policies, just all platitudes. In fact, the only policy substance we learned that's new about Beto is that he flipped on Medicare for All. Now he's explicitly against it. So if, if this is what we have to expect, then we are in for a very long election cycle. And I just want candidates to be focused on policy, nothing else. But we're not going to get that from Joe Biden, because when you look at the substance policy wise, there's, there's not a lot there to brag about.
And same is true for Trump. So, um, you know, we'll see. But certainly, getting back to Joe Biden, I mean, I don't even have to tell you guys he's not progressive. I think it's just laughable. And even centrists would have to admit he's not progressive. Just stay in your lane, Joe. Be the anti-Bernie if you're going to be the anti-Bernie. But don't try to be, you know, Hillary and Bernie simultaneously because it's going to backfire. It's just not going to work. After Beto O'Rourke launched his 2020 campaign, progressives everywhere were making fun of him, and I think rightly so, and this includes me, because it seemed as if he was going out of his way to avoid talking about policy substance. Like, all he had to bring to the table was platitudes. No policy substance whatsoever. So I think that these are things that we're going to observe because you have a plethora of candidates running with very specific policy ideas and bold policy proposals. So if you're going to announce a campaign and not bring anything new to the table, then I think that we're right to make fun of you, or at least us trying to clown on you for not being a serious candidate. It's justifiable. And throughout the course of the weekend, he kept posting videos on Twitter of him standing on tables of small coffee shops like a lunatic. And what you can see is small crowds of just a dozen or so people who didn't really seem that enthusiastic about his message. So we were getting a lot of indications that he was off to kind of a lackluster start and that maybe he had even face planted. However, we've got the first day fundraising totals in and really at this point in time that's how you can kind of gauge how well he's doing so let's look at the headlines and let's see how well he did within the first 24 hours as nbc news reports beto o'rourke raises 6.1 million on first day topping sanders and all other rivals no that sucks <laughs> Not something that I wanted to hear, not something that I was actually expecting, but nonetheless, it is what it is, and I'm not going to do to Beto what the mainstream media tries to do to Bernie Sanders and downplay all of his accomplishments. This is a big deal. I mean, this is a very successful launch for Beto O'Rourke. It pains me to admit that, but, you know, facts are facts. He had a great first day. Now, we'll kind of stick a pin in this discussion and come back to that 6.1 million figure later. But for now, let's hear from Beto and what he has to say about his obviously successful launch. I say thank you to everyone who is helping to build the largest grassroots campaign this country has ever seen, funded completely by, powered completely by people not PACs, not lobbyists, not corporations, and not special interests. It's one of the best ways to bring the country together is to make sure that we are listening to one another and not that entrenchment of wealth and power and privilege that has defined so much of our politics from before. What message do you hope that number sends to your opponents, to your supporters? I, I hope this sends a message to everyone who's out there who's looking for a different way to, to run a national race. Uh, a race that is premised on our faith in one another, uh, that's not going to take any PAC money, that believes that the people of this country, through their individual donations of money, but also of support in knocking on doors or making phone calls or texting a friend about coming out to an event in Macomb County, what, whatever it takes being there at this time that our democracy calls for the very best in all of us. And I think this is 
a, a great sign that in the first 24 hours, this many people were able to come together. Do you know what your average contribution I, was? I don't know what our average contribution was. I just know that, that people contributed from every state in the union. Um, as, as I get more details uh, on, on how those contributions came in and, and the number in which they came in, I'll share that. But um, that, that top line number of $6.1 million and the fact that it came from every state in the union uh, were, were just something I'm, I'm really grateful to be able to share. So he claims that he doesn't know what his average contribution is, which I find completely bizarre. Because if your campaign really is, quote, funded completely by, powered completely by people, not PACs, not lobbyists, not corporations, and not special interests, then wouldn't you want to show us the receipts? Wouldn't you want to brag about how your average contribution is tiny or the number of individual contributors you were able to get on that first day? I mean, this is something that a grassroots candidate would want to brag about. You'd be excited about this. And he boasted in his announcement video about wanting to run the largest grassroots campaign in American history. So it's bizarre that you wouldn't know about something that should be interesting to you. Because if you're running a grassroots campaign, again, these are the things you want to look at. You'd want to look at these indicators like average donation, number of donors, just so you can get a sense of how grassroots your campaign is. But I don't necessarily think he doesn't know. I think he doesn't want us to know. And that's what this is all really about because he kind of admitted, yeah, I'm playing coy with the numbers because I'm choosing to not share them right now. Can you release any of your fundraising figures over the past 48 hours? I can't. I can't right now. Yeah. When, when, why not? I, oh, you're right. I could. <laughs> let, me, let me answer the question better. I, I choose not to. <laughs> Thank you. So that to me is incredibly strange. I just, I don't get why you wouldn't want to share these numbers and brag about them. Because he certainly, he, he can brag about the 6.1 million. You can't question his success there. However, if you want to validate the claim that you are a grassroots campaign, then you do need to disclose these numbers. Now, soon enough, we will see these numbers. These are all going to be available in future FEC reports. But for the most part, it's very strange that he doesn't want to reveal this information to us. And what that tells me, and again, I can only speculate because I don't know since I haven't seen the numbers, is that he actually didn't beat Bernie in terms of number of individual donors and he probably has a relatively high average donation size which means it would kind of undermine this grassroots appeal that he's currently trying to cultivate but there have been other theories as to why he managed to raise so much money one person actually said that when Beto O'Rourke finished the 2018 Senate race he gave about 4.5 million dollars to the Texas Democratic Party who then returned that money to him on the first day of his launch however as splinter journalist Libby Watson points out there's absolutely zero evidence to back up this claim and in fact the FEC doesn't even have data after January 31st so we just can't verify this and we shouldn't spread this misinformation around if we don't actually know that this is a fact and if we can't actually confirm it but I think probably the most likely explanation is that former investment banker Louis Sussman who's on board with Beto is probably bundling large contributions from elites 
Or maybe it's a combination of both, to be fair. Maybe it's large and small donors, and maybe it's not as small as he would have hoped, which is why he doesn't want to share the numbers. I mean, Beto does have the ability to raise a lot of money from small individual donations, because when you look at the ratio of small to large donors, he actually does a relatively good job in comparison with people like Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Kamala Harris, with 12%, 33%, and 34% of total contributions coming from small donors, respectively. So it is sketchy that he doesn't want to reveal this information to us, and we can only speculate and say, well, look, he probably just has a much higher average contribution size and less donors than Bernie, which is why he doesn't want to reveal it. But it's all speculation. And is it possible that he did, in fact, just best Bernie? Well, he certainly bested Bernie when it comes to the total. But did he get more grassroots support based on small individual donations? I mean, it seems unlikely, but it's possible. And it pains me to say that. But it is possible regardless if we want to admit that or not. So the reason why I say that is because when I was talking with a centrist on Twitter who said that they donated to Beto, they said they donated $250. So if you have all of these centrists who are excited about Beto O'Rourke and who don't really want to substantially change the status quo in the way that Bernie Sanders does because they're comfortable. And if they're comfortable, you can logically deduce from that that if they have a lot of money to burn, maybe they're going to donate a lot of money to Beto O'Rourke, especially knowing that they need to do better than Bernie Sanders. Since Bernie raised $6 million in his, in his first day, technically $5.9 million, they now know what the bar is, and maybe they went out of their way to try to beat you know, Bernie Sanders. So it's definitely possible. And here's what I will say. We need to treat this, as Bernie supporters, we need to treat this as if Beto O'Rourke he did do better than Bernie, even if that's not necessarily true. Because what he did, regardless if we like it or not, by raising $6.1 million, regardless if it came from small or large donors, is he showed that he actually is a candidate who has potential to go the distance here. And when you see that Kamala Harris is kind of starting to lose momentum, her crowds are getting smaller and smaller... I wouldn't be surprised if the establishment tried to throw all of their weight behind Beto soon. So I think that we need to take him seriously. And even if we don't have the specifics, we should just pretend as if his average contribution is comparable to Bernie and he has a comparable number of individual donors because we shouldn't be trying to pretend as if Bernie has this wrapped up. What this should do is it should motivate us as Sanders supporters to actually get out there and spread the word about Bernie canvas for him and phone bang for him don't become complacent and think oh well you know bernie he's still number one beto's not revealing this information because you know he's probably doing worse than bernie in terms of uh you know small dollar donors don't even think that just pretend as if he's doing better than bernie because we cannot underestimate any of our opponents just regardless if we don't have these specifics 6.1 million is a huge number and he may not have policy substance he may be a goofball but regardless, we have to take him as a serious threat that he is in reality because this demonstrated that, like it or not, he had a successful launch. So regardless, it honestly doesn't matter if the $6.1 million was raised from smaller big donors. The only thing that matters with regard to the specifics there is if he has street cred with regard to you know, him being a grassroots-funded campaign. It seems as if this is more of an AstroTurf campaign because he's a conservative 
who has the support of elites. So that's probably the most likely scenario, but I'm going to pretend as if it's not the most likely scenario. I'm going to pretend that he is a grassroots candidate like Bernie because we should treat him as that type of threat because that's exactly what the establishment will try to do regardless. And that number, that 6.1 million, means the media will unquestionably take him seriously. We'll take him at his word and we'll we'll see in the future. But for now, we've just got to take this seriously because it seems like he's going to be a serious contender, which again, strange because the dude is all fluff, but Democratic voters went for Hillary Clinton before a large portion, so, you know, it's not too surprising that they'd go for someone else who's completely vacuous. For those of you who have been following Beto O'Rourke's 2020 presidential campaign, you've probably noticed that something is conspicuously absent from all of his campaign events. Policy substance. There is just nothing there. He hasn't said anything about what he'd do to improve our lives, which really is kind of the point of running for president in the first place. Instead, all we get are vague platitudes, we get this flowery rhetoric, these really inspirational anecdotes that he's heard from people around the country, and it's all wonderful if you just want to feel good, but if you actually want your life to be improved, then he's got to actually start talking about policy. So, I've been frustrated about Beto here, and I know that I'm not alone, because at a recent event at a college, somebody decided to finally ask him what we've all been thinking. When are you going to start talking about policy? Oh, and also, when are you going to release the specific fundraising numbers so we know more about where you got that money, where you got that $6.1 million within the first 24 hours? And what you're going to see here is basically Beto O'Rourke get grilled <laughs> by someone who was not having any of the bullshit, none of the platitudes whatsoever. And throughout this clip, uh, I spliced together two different angles. So the clip is from ABC News. However, they didn't share the first part of the question where the questioner really sets up this question and explains why she has a problem with Beto using just platitudes and not being transparent about his fundraising totals. So you're going to see that spliced together throughout here. But, um, let me just show you her question and then we'll talk about it and then we'll get to his answer afterwards. So my question has to deal with campaign finance. Uh, you recently pulled in $6.1 million if I occur. Uh, yeah, you, come on, give him a round of applause for that. It's not bad. It's not bad. Uh, you broke all records, which I guess is pretty good. But my uh, concern is how much of that is coming from a process which is called bundling. For those of you who don't know, bundling is a process in which um, uh, political activists and people in the private sector and lobbyists go to wealthy um, multimillionaires and billionaires and basically tell them to give the maximum, which is normally uh, anywhere from $2,700 to $5,600. and basically use it to sort of overinflate a campaigner's, um, you know, their first day totals. For example, just 1,000 people giving paying 5, the maximum $5,600, that's $5.6 million right off the bat. Your campaign has not released the number of individual donors you have, nor has it released the um, average donation. Now, I'm not accusing you of that, but the fact that your campaign is currently working with notorious mega bundler Lewis Sussman gives me a bit of a clue. In addition, um, 
Uh, when we look on your website, we don't really see anything in terms of a solid platform for policies. It's mostly just platitudes in a merch store. So I guess, two-pronged question. One, are you going to release the number of individual donors and their average donor donation? Because I know your campaign has that data. If it didn't, it would mean you'd be running a very incompetent campaign. And I don't think you are. You seem like you have your stuff together, mostly. And two, when are we going to get an actual policy from you instead of just, like, platitudes and nice stories? Thank you. Damn. <laughs> um, that was absolutely just savage but if we had pundits in the mainstream media actually treat candidates this way then i think our country would be in a lot better shape because it's obvious that they don't want to talk about policy if they don't have substance so what you've got to do is you've got to corner them hold their feet to the fire and force them to answer very specific questions when it's obvious they're trying to avoid certain things like fundraising figures and policy specifics. So that person who asked that question, that woman is a national treasure and you know she's awesome because she's actually a Humanist Report viewer and she really should be teaching classes to pundits in the mainstream media because I just, everything about that was just phenomenal. <laughs> so let's get to Beto O'Rourke's answer. You're going to see here that He's going to give some policy specifics, but I mean, it's still not really going to be that satisfactory. Thanks, everybody. So, so the answer to your first question is yes. In, in addition to how much we raised, the fact that we raised it from all 50 states, the fact that we took not a dime from a single pack or lobbyist, we will, we will release the average and the number of donors. To your second question, to, to your second question about policy. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to be as specific as I can. I, I mentioned our criminal justice system. I've called for the end of the prohibition on marijuana and the expungement of the arrest records of everyone who's been arrested for marijuana. I've been doing that for a long time. On the question of health care, we've talked about universal guaranteed high quality health care. You asked the path to get there. Two extraordinary women with whom I've served in Congress, Jan Schakowsky of Illinois, Rosa DeLauro of, New of uh, Connecticut, have introduced a proposal called Medicare for America that ensures that if you have employer-based insurance and you like it, you keep it. Your doctors, your network, what works for you right now. If you don't have insurance or you don't like the insurance you already have, you enroll in Medicare. Costs a lot of money. It will be measured in the trillions of dollars. It is not inexpensive. But as I made the point and I hope the case earlier, it's a far, it's a lot less expensive than taking care of people at end of life who've never been treated in the first place. When it comes to public school education, paying teachers a living wage and starting, starting public education not in kindergarten at five years old, but in pre-K at four years old, universally for every single child in this country. I was asked about the Green New Deal. I answered the question about the, the, the Green New Deal. When I talk about rural America, I talk about an opioid crisis which is disproportionately felt in rural America. I talk about those whom we must hold accountable for the crisis and the way in which we must treat those who are enduring the crisis, not through incarceration, but through compassion and treatment and care so that they can get back up on their feet. So in every single policy area, I'm trying to describe not just the goal and the aspiration, the, but the path that we will take to get there. I understand if we disagree or come to different conclusions. That's the genius of our democracy. I appreciate you being here and asking the questions. Thank you. Okay, so the first part of his answer was good. Just 
It was straightforward. He said, yes, I will release the fundraising numbers. So just do it. Don't wait. Get it over with. Release it. Now, moving on to policy. He did cite some specific policies. He wants to end the prohibition on marijuana and expunge everyone's records. I think that's fantastic. Um, he brings up the Green New Deal, but doesn't say whether or not he supports it because he says he already answered that question. But I mean, you can't expect people to do their own research. You've got to come out and say, I answered this question, but let me reiterate my answer. I support it or I don't support it. Because I mean, it's you shouldn't be burying the lead and saying, well, I already answered that question. Go look for it if you want to know what I said. No, keep talking about policy. I, I don't get that. He also says he wants to do something about the opioid epidemic. Didn't say any specifics. He supports paying teachers a living wage and universal pre-K. So, I mean, this all sounds fine, but when it gets to healthcare, which is the second part or the second policy he brought up, rather, um, horrible, horrible answer. It's evident that he doesn't support Medicare for all, and that's because he supports Medicare for America. Now, if you're going to talk about healthcare and you don't immediately say Medicare for all, it's evident that that person does not support Medicare for all. And we know that he doesn't because he explicitly backtracked on the day he announced. Um, now, let me play a clip from TYT where he brought up healthcare. He invoked healthcare and watch how quickly he says the words Medicare for all. Talk about universal healthcare, perhaps not the thing you're supposed to talk about running statewide in Texas, or that Medicare for all is the best articulation of how you get there. That's what you should do. If you invoke healthcare, you've immediately got to bring up Medicare for all. And he said there very clearly within 10 seconds, Medicare for all is the best articulation for how you get to universal care. But fast forward to today, and as the DSA points out, the floor is Medicare for all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty accurate because he's trying to avoid it like the plague many candidates are. So I'm really glad that Beto was grilled here. And, you know, it's it shouldn't be college students that actually hold candidates' feet to the fire. They should be grilled to this extent every time they're on the mainstream media. And that goes for everyone, even people I support. Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang. In fact, Tulsi Gabbard is grilled more so than anyone. So why aren't we holding politicians like Beto O'Rourke's feet to the fire? Why are we letting them wiggle away from uh, issues like Medicare for All? Why can't you pin them down and get them to answer? It's incredibly frustrating that it takes a college student with, I'm assuming, no experience in journalism to get a straight answer out of politicians. That shouldn't be the case. Um, but nonetheless, it was the case, and kudos to that individual who asked the question. Phenomenal job, and I think that this is what we need to do. If politicians aren't going to give us policy substance, we've got to make sure we get it out of them in some way, shape, or form. And shaming them in that way that she did, it seemed to work because he did give her a direct answer. CNN finally gave Elizabeth Warren her own town hall, and I think it was long overdue, and overall, she did a really good job in my opinion. You can tell that she was having a lot of fun with it. I think that she came across as a really personable candidate. This wasn't necessarily the I'm going to crack open a beer Elizabeth Warren that we saw on Instagram when she first launched. I think you kind of saw her embrace the inner wonk and nerd that she actually is. And that's great because that's what we love about Elizabeth Warren. Be yourself. Don't try to be Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Don't even try to be Bernie. Just be yourself 
and tell us about your policy ideas. And for the most part, I think that she did that really well. And this is probably the first CNN town hall where I'm not going to complain about the questions that were asked because for the most part, almost all of them were very substantive, which is great. It's a breath of fresh air because when you tune into CNN, you expect mostly idiotic questions. But I mean, for the most part, they were great. I think that they curated a list of questions that were fair, um, but still tough. So by and large, I think that she did a great job and I'm tempted to give her a high grade. However, she answered so poorly on one particular question that it not just harmed my perspective or impacted my perspective about the town hall overall, it actually literally brought her down in my book as a candidate. And that is a question about Medicare for all. It's the one question where I think it was clear she completely bombed. And I'm going to show you a clip now of an individual that talked about Medicare for all. And he framed his question in a way of, I support it, but I'm worried about the fact that unions are kind of against it because people like their current health insurance. And if you're someone who actually supports Medicare for all, what you want to do in these instances is educate them. This is what Bernie Sanders did at his town hall. Bernie Sanders explained that people don't necessarily like their insurance, rather they like their doctor. So really the only difference with Medicare for all and the current for-profit system is that instead of having a Blue Cross Blue Shield card, you'd have a Medicare card. So we're really at a point in time where when we have the public behind a certain policy, Medicare for all, now progressive leaders need to be educating people, giving them the details. But Elizabeth Warren did not do that. She talked about everything with regard to healthcare, but Medicare for all. So this is her answer. And then when we come back, I'm going to tell you why I was so disappointed. But don't worry, we will get to her other answers. So we'll end on a positive note. But I just want to get this out of the way because I think it's really important. Healthcare is a basic human right and we fight for basic human rights. And then let's put these in order, because I appreciate that your question starts with the Affordable Care Act. Let's all remember, when we're talking about what's possible, let's start where we are and the difference between Democrats and Republicans. Right now, Democrats are trying to figure out how to expand health care coverage at the lowest possible cost so everybody is covered. Republicans, right this minute, are out there trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They've got a lawsuit pending down in Texas where they're trying to roll it back, what they couldn't do with a vote. They're trying to do with the courts. HHS every day is doing what they can to undermine the Affordable Care Act. So when we're talking about healthcare in America right now, the first thing we need to be talking about is defend the Affordable Care Act. Protection under the Affordable Care Act. Part two. Let's make the improvements that are what I think of as the low-hanging fruit. For example, let's bring down the cost of prescription drugs all across this country. And then you know what you're going to hear from a consumer advocate. And that is we need to hold insurance companies accountable. And that means no tripping and trapping people on those insurance contracts. And then when we talk about Medicare for all, there are a lot of different pathways. What we're all looking for is the lowest cost way to make sure everybody gets covered. And some folks are talking about, let's start lowering the age. 
maybe bring it down to 60, 55, 50. That helps cover people who are most at risk and can be helpful, for example, to the labor's plans. Some people say, do it the other way. Let's bring it up from uh, everybody under 30 gets covered by Medicare. Others say, let employers be able to buy into the Medicare plans. Others say, let's let employees buy into the Medicare plans. For me, what's key is we get everybody at the table on this, that labor's at the table, that people who have to buy on their own, everybody comes to the table together, and we figure out how to do Medicare for all in a way that makes sure that we're going to get 100% coverage in this country at the lowest possible cost for everyone. That's our job. First of all, she started by saying healthcare is a right. This is a term that was important at first, but now it's meaningless because even corporate Democrats like John Delaney contend that healthcare is a right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it should be a right in the sense that it's free at the point of delivery, which means they don't actually believe it's a right. But what this tells me is that corporate Democrats have co-opted the language that progressives use when pitching Medicare for all. So that doesn't say anything. So saying healthcare is a right, not important anymore. She then pivoted to how bad Republicans are and said, look, Democrats want to expand healthcare. Republicans want to chip away at it. And that's true, but you should be explaining Medicare for all specifically. She said, we've got to start by defending the Affordable Care Act. And then we've got to bring down the price of prescription drugs. And then we've got to hold insurance companies accountable. And then finally, towards the end she got to medicare for all and she says when we talk about medicare for all there are lots of different pathways what we're all looking for is the lowest cost way to make sure everybody gets covered and then she talks about lowering the age of medicare and then a public option where you can buy into medicare and it's just evident that she was tap dancing around medicare for all itself and then she said we need to get people together quote and figure out how to do Medicare for all in a way that makes sure that we're going to get 100% coverage in this country at the lowest possible cost for everyone. Well, hey, Liz, I've got news for you. You just answered your own question. It's Medicare for all. So if you say Medicare for all and you're still wondering how we get to lower cost coverage and 100% of people covered, then something seriously disingenuous is happening there. Because if you want to get to 100% coverage, you just pass Medicare for all. It really is that simple. Now, crafting the policy details itself is complex, but it is the one solution. That is not just something that's politically savvy because it's overwhelmingly popular, but from a policy standpoint, it's just a good policy. It's what all the other modern industrialized nations have, and it's what we should move towards. But she didn't say that. Now, I'm going to show you a follow-up where Jake Tapper said, well, look, you've co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. Does that mean you support abolishing private health insurance companies? Now, I have an issue with the way he framed that question because this talk of abolishing private healthcare companies is a bit disingenuous because Bernie's bill and Pramila Jayapal's bill does not just outright say we're going to abolish private health insurance companies. It just kind of makes them outdated and unnecessary if you have Medicare for all. But nonetheless, I'm not playing you this clip so you can see Jake Tapper basically talk about Medicare for all in a really ignorant way. I'm playing it for you because I want you to pay attention to how fast 
Elizabeth Warren runs away from the fact that she co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. So you are a co-sponsor of Senator Bernie Sanders' Medicare for for All bill. And I understand there are a lot of different paths to universal coverage. But but his bill that you've co-sponsored would essentially eliminate private insurance. Is that something you could support? He's got to run away for that. I think we get everybody together. And that's what it is. We'll decide. Um, I've also co-sponsored other bills, including expanding Medicaid is another approach that we use. But what's really important to me about this is we never lose sight of what the center is, because the center is about making sure that every single person in this country gets the coverage they need and that it's at a price that they can afford. We start with our values. We'll get to the right place. Ask yourself this question. Does that look to you like someone who's going to fight for Medicare for all if she gets elected? It was almost as if she was embarrassed to admit that she co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. Oh, well, I didn't just co-sponsor that bill. I co-sponsored these other bills too. Public option, lowering the age of uh, Medicare. I don't understand why she would do this. But it communicates to me very clearly that she does not support Medicare for All and she absolutely wouldn't fight for it. Because at this stage... When you already have the public behind you, if you actually support Medicare for All, then you're moving on to the details. You're now trying to educate people about it before you actually implement it. She's not doing that. She's talking about other issues. So, I mean, this was absolutely, it felt like a gut punch to see her talk about it this way. Because I already told you that she's kind of giving us indications that she's backing away from Medicare for All, but she still had enough room for plausible deniability. But here, with this long-winded answer where she wouldn't firmly commit to it, it's evident she just doesn't support it. She may support it in a roundabout way. It may be a long-term goal, but within the next four to eight years in the event she's elected, would she fight for it? I think it's clear she would not. So I was thoroughly unimpressed. It affected the way I feel about her as a candidate. She went down substantially in my book. I mean, Medicare for All is the bare minimum. It's the easiest litmus test to pass if you actually are progressive. Do you think people should not die or go bankrupt if they can't afford health insurance? If the answer is yes, then the only solution is making healthcare free at the point of service. That's what Medicare for All does, and it's already a compromise because the ideal system would be a national health system like the UK has. So we're already compromising. But you can't even commit to something that's just standard for American progressivism. And that is now supported among the overwhelming majority of Americans. It's just unforgivable. But I don't want to give you the impression that this entire town hall was awful because of that answer. Because really that was the outlier. Because everything else was pretty good. So she was asked a question about essentially reparations the person who posed the question to her didn't say the words reparations she asked what her administration would do to apologize to to apologize for 400 years of slavery and i was actually really impressed here with elizabeth warren's answer america was founded on principles of liberty and freedom and on the backs of slave labor this is a stain on america And we're not going to fix that. We're not going to change that until we address it head on directly. And make no mistake, it's not just the original founding. It's what's happened generation after generation. 
the impact of discrimination handed down from one to the next means that today in America, because of housing discrimination, because of employment discrimination, we live in a world where for the average white family has $100, the average black family has about $5. So I believe it's time to start the national, full-blown conversation about reparations in this country. I support the bill in the House to appoint a congressional panel to, of experts, of people who are studying this, who talk about different ways we may be able to do it, and to make a report back to Congress so that we can, as a nation, do what's right and begin to heal. So she was asked a really broad question, and she chose to bring up reparations. And she also talked about pushing for H.R. 40. She talked about bringing people from the community together to decide what's the best approach here for reparations. And Jake Tapper asked whether or not she supports writing a check, and she didn't explicitly endorse this. Um, no candidate has thus far, but I do think that her answer about bringing people together, it was comprehensive and it was impressive. It showed that she really is listening and she's astute here, at least minimally. So I personally was impressed here. And then the issue of voting rights came up and she touched on a topic within the discussion of voting rights that no candidate ever talks about. And it was another area where I was absolutely impressed with her answer. I believe we need a constitutional amendment that protects the right to vote for every American citizen and to make sure that vote gets counted. We need to put some federal muscle behind that. And we need to repeal every one of the voter suppression laws that is out there right now. And I'll tell you one more. We need to make sure that every vote counts. And, and I, I want to I push that right here in Mississippi, because I think this is an important point. You know, come a general election, presidential candidates don't come to places like Mississippi. Yeah. They also don't come to places like California and Massachusetts, right? Because we're not the battleground states. Well, my view is that every vote matters. And the way we can make that happen is that we can have national voting, and that means get rid of the electoral college and That right there, in my opinion, is exactly how you answer a question about voting rights, because it's not just like you have to repeal all of these voter ID laws and laws that disenfranchise voters. And, you know, it's not just about reenfranchising voters. It's making sure that our democracy as a whole is more equitable. And so long as we have this outdated racist institution known as the Electoral College in place, we can't have that. So she talked about abolishing the Electoral College and the crowd went nuts. That was probably one of the moments where they applauded her the loudest and the strongest because they were so excited. And I'm especially glad to see her come out and take this position after another progressive presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, came out and said, I don't support abolishing the Electoral College. And I can't see how that is something anyone could agree with because what Andrew Yang was saying is, look, I think that if we do that, then candidates are just going to campaign in densely populated uh, cities and they're going to avoid rural areas. But 
They should be campaigning where the people are. And what matters the most is that all of our votes are weighted equally. But somebody in California doesn't have as much voting power as someone in a swing state like Ohio. So that's completely unacceptable. So I don't even think that it's reasonable anymore to say I'm against abolishing the Electoral College. I think it's just the standard progressive position. Because if you honestly think we shouldn't, then you have to defend how twice in modern history we've had presidents who actually were able to assume office while getting less votes than their opponent. It's just an untenable position for someone who's progressive, and I'm really glad that she came out swinging here. Now, the last clip that I want to play for you is her plan to mitigate corruption. Um, she was initially asked what she'd do to make sure that the wealthy pay their fair share. And, um, you know, I think that she went into corruption and uh, her Accountable Capitalism Act. And overall, it wasn't a perfect answer, but for the most part, it was really great and uh, thorough. When you've got a government that works for the rich and it's not working nearly as well for anyone else, that's corruption. And we need to call it out plain and simple. So the first thing we need to do is we need to attack that corruption head on. I have the biggest anti-corruption bill since Watergate. Big problem, you gotta have a big bill to deal with it. Now, it's got a lot of pieces to it, but the main point is to beat back on the influence of money. Because that's how they keep getting this government, getting this country to work for them. So for example, my bill says we're gonna end lobbying as we know it. Between Main Street, uh, between Wall Street and Washington. Uh, that, I'll give you one more. Everyone who runs for federal office ought to have to put their taxes online. We gotta deal with the corruption head on, but let me give you a part two. I was talking earlier about we gotta rewrite the rules in this economy. And part of that is putting more power back in the hands of workers. Unions, that's one way to do it. I've got an accountable capitalism bill that says on the big Fortune 500 companies that we're going to have employees also sit on the board of directors and help make decisions. <laughs> but there's one more we've got to talk about, and that is my ultra-millionaires tax. So the idea is on the truly great fortunes, $50 million and above, we start charging 2% a year on just that 50 millionth and first dollar and on up. 2% a year. By the way, anybody in here a homeowner? You've been paying wealth taxes for a long time. They're just called property taxes. I, I just want to include the Rembrandt and the diamonds in the property taxes. So I want to put a wealth tax in place and I just want to talk to you for one minute about how that restructures our whole economy. We get a 2% tax on the 75,000 richest families in this country. We would have enough money to provide universal childcare, universal pre-K, universal pre-pre-K for every child in America and still have $2 trillion left over. Let's make it happen. 
So I liked her response there because it was long, but unlike her answer on Medicare for All, this was actually substantive. Now, it's not perfect because my perfect answer to the issue of corruption would be a constitutional amendment where we just get money out of politics, we ban super PACs, and we publicly finance every single election. That's my ideal situation, but nonetheless, what she's talking about here it really wouldn't make a difference. She talked about her anti-corruption bill that would end lobbying as we know it. I need to know more details, but I like it. Just, you know, by default, she talked about locking the revolving door between Main Street and Washington. She talked about how everyone who runs for federal office will be mandated to release their tax returns. I mean, I think that this is all just standard and it's common sense. And then she talked about her Accountable Capitalism Act. And what I liked is that she brought up her wealth tax, but she compared it to a property tax and explained how we kind of already have a wealth tax on homeowners. It's just that we call it property taxes and not a wealth tax. And she didn't just talk about the amount of revenue that that would bring in, but she gave us some examples as to what we could do with that revenue. And I think that's exactly how you've got to answer these questions. You don't make it just about forcing the rich to pay their fair share, but you make it about giving Americans what's owed to them. So by and large, to kind of just take a step back, I think she did a good job. She answered most questions in a way that ranges from adequate to excellent, but I just, I really am stuck on her answer when it comes to Medicare for All. It was so atrocious. I didn't expect her to give that bad of an answer. Um, And I know that people will call me alarmist and say that I'm being hyperbolic and I'm trying to, you know, not interpret her answer in a way that's charitable or should be interpreted. But look, you've got to understand that if somebody's not saying why we need Medicare for all, then they're not in favor of Medicare for all. Because if you say, well, there's many paths to Medicare for all, essentially what you're arguing for is a stepping stone in between Medicare for all and our current system, which is unnecessary. You don't need a stepping stone. There's no law that mandates a stepping stone <laughs> between, um, you know, what we have now, our shitty system and Medicare for all. You could just pass Medicare for all and have it be the law. But overall, I don't want to give you the impression that this was bad. I think she did a good job. It's just that that answer was bad on Medicare for all. But um, it was it was a good town hall. I would encourage people to watch the entire thing. But um, overall, I think that it's clear she has some really innovative ideas and you can see that she's trying to be more authentic and I think that it's working for her. She's more personable. She's not trying to be as focus group driven as she previously seemed at the beginning of her campaign. And, you know, by and large, I think this was a good town hall and it was more heavy on the substance than I would have expected, which is good. Newly elected Brazilian president Jair Bolsonaro, who's a fascist, came to Washington, D.C. and met with President Donald Trump. And to nobody's surprise, they both hit it off because there's a lot of similarities between the two of them. And these are similarities that even they recognized. So as Ben Schreckender of Politico explains, the official agenda for Tuesday's meeting between President Donald Trump and Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro revolves around economic cooperation and the toppling of Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro. Unofficially, the visit marks a milestone for what some see as an emerging new world order of strongmen 
backed by right-wing insurgencies. Supporters of both presidents are using the occasion to stitch together the populist movements that propelled each man into office. Meeting with Bolsonaro at the White House Tuesday, Trump said he was honored by the comparisons between the two men's winning presidential campaigns. Trump praised Bolsonaro for running a very incredible campaign. Some said a little bit reminded people of our campaign, noting he believed the Brazilian leader has done a very outstanding job. The two even both used Trump's favorite term, fake news. I call it fake news, Trump said during a joint press conference with Bolsonaro. I'm very proud to hear the president use the term fake news. But the like-minded love fest began days earlier. On Saturday, Bolsonaro's youngest son, Eduardo, a member of Brazil's Congress, exchanged compliments with Trump's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon, in the basement of the Trump Hotel, then showed up in the lobby with a green hat that declared, Make Brazil Great Again. The occasion was an intimate screening of a documentary about Olavo de Carvalho, a right-wing Brazilian intellectual considered the new president's guru. The next night, all three men attended a dinner at the Brazilian ambassador's residence where the elder Bolsonaro decried communism. The specter of socialism is also a favorite new theme for Trump, and a group of pro-Trump intellectuals schmoozed with members of Brazil's cabinet. Bolsonaro, nicknamed the Trump of the Tropics, has drawn widespread condemnation in the U.S. for those remarks as well as racist comments. His defense of Brazil's former military dictatorship and his family's ties to violent paramilitary groups. But the Trump administration has embraced him wholeheartedly. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo attended Bolsonaro's January inauguration, tweeting, Great meeting President Jair Bolsonaro to reinforce our shared commitment to democracy, education, prosperity, security, and human rights, which is hilarious. On Monday, Bolsonaro paid a visit to CIA headquarters in Langley and then spoke at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, declaring, quote, we want to have a great Brazil, just like Trump wants to have a great America. On Tuesday morning, ahead of the meeting between the two heads of state, National Security Advisor John Bolton nodded to the potential global implications of the Bolsonaro-Trump alliance. This is a potentially historic opportunity to redirect relations between our two countries, the two largest democracies in the Western Hemisphere, he said. I think it will have a profound impact, not just in this hemisphere, but really around the world. That to me is not surprising at all because Donald Trump himself, like Jair Bolsonaro, has fascistic tendencies. I don't think it's unfair to characterize Donald Trump as a proto-fascist because he is. But the difference is that Jair Bolsonaro is a little bit more open about his fascism, whereas Donald Trump tends to hide it a little bit more and uses more dog whistles. But I mean... What do you do if you're a normal human being, if you're a reasonable person, and you have the newly elected Brazilian president come to the White House to meet with you, who's a fascist, what do you do? You tell him that you're concerned about the fact that he's opening up the Amazon rainforest to special interests, which is something we all need because the Amazon is the Earth's lungs. It impacts not just Brazil, but every single human being on the planet. That's kind of important. That's kind of something that Trump maybe should have brought to his attention. He should have maybe asked Bolsonaro why he's demonizing gays and women and marginalized communities in Brazil, why he's rolling back protections for hundreds of indigenous Brazilians, why he's choosing to militarize the police and government, which puts Afro-Brazilians at risk. Maybe ask him how he can allow his political opponent, Lula da Silva, to be imprisoned under dubious corruption charges. I mean, these are concerns that are normal 
president who's not an idiot would bring to the attention of a fascist leader. But we know that Donald Trump, one, probably doesn't even know about anything that's happening in Brazil, and two, doesn't really care. Because look at this, he wouldn't even end the weapons deal that we agreed to with Saudi Arabia after they killed a journalist. So if you're not even willing at a bare minimum to say, all right, you just lost the weapons deal because of that, then of course he's not going to care about a newly elected fascist. So, I mean, it, it, these are all things, these are all concerns that we have, but Trump doesn't have because Trump probably agrees with Jair Bolsonaro and he lauded Bolsonaro for all of the similarities. And Donald Trump is someone who he's not going to criticize someone who basically modeled his presidential campaign after Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump has a very huge ego, and anyone who basically fluffs his ego and shrugs his ego is A-OK -okay in his book. So it's not surprising to see these two individuals chum it up, because birds of a feather flock together, and the same is true for fascists. And what we're really seeing is this global phenomenon of far-right extremism led by Donald Trump and now Jair Bolsonaro. And it's, it's something that is popping up everywhere. And it's just, it is incredibly terrifying. And what's especially problematic is that Donald Trump, he has no problem, you know, being compared to Bolsonaro, especially when people like Glenn Greenwald, who lives in Brazil, said he's really but Bolsonaro specifically, he's not necessarily as close to Donald Trump as we want to believe. He's more similar to Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, who is doing extrajudicial killings. So, I mean, you would think that someone as openly fascistic as Bolsonaro would maybe make Donald Trump want to pump the brakes on overwhelming praise. But again, Donald Trump, he has no self-awareness whatsoever. He's unintelligent. So, I'm not surprised by this at all. Laura Ingram of Fox News brought on Ben Shapiro, and it seemed as if they initially wanted to talk about the college admission scandal, but it kind of just turned into a session where they both just um, take a dump on the left and blame them for any and all of America's problems. So I don't understand what the overall goal of this discussion was, but nonetheless, enjoy. Members of Generation E believe he or she should get into the best colleges, even if he or she does not have the best grades or the best scores. And they develop, by the way, this warped view of their own self-importance because mommy and daddy raised them to believe that they were special. What's the end result here? Well, many of these young people, and it's, it's not just the wealthy kids, grow up to be demanding, entitled, Adults, I want to begin with what we were talking about earlier, and it, it dovetails into everything you write about in your book, the emerging, emerging politics of grievance and entitlement, Generation E. Uh, your thoughts on how to best thwart this, combat this, cure this? I mean, I think that the, the best way to combat a lot of this stuff is to focus on achievement and freedom and responsibility. The fact is that freedom comes along with the duty to achieve, and you're not owed anything in this world. Why should you perceive yourself to be owed a college slot? Why should your parents give you everything? You know, that, that sort of mentality is foreign to a lot of the bases for Western civilization and, and the basis for America, this idea that 
we were supposed to go forth and conquer, that we were supposed to forge into the wilderness and we were supposed to build something out there. That sort of mentality, unfortunately, has been abandoned in favor of this grievance culture, as you suggest, that says that we're all owed something from the world. And if we don't get it, it's because the system has failed us. Well, and and even the, the shirt that that young woman was wearing, T-shirt, when she was confronting Chelsea Clinton, of all people, like Chelsea Clinton's... But you, isn't that kind of a, I hate, I'm so sick of the phrase jump the shark because that's jump the shark. But isn't that it telling you a, a lot about just how pathetic this whole entitlement movement has gone when Chelsea Clinton is targeted? Yeah, I mean, when Chelsea Clinton is too radical for you because she's too far on the right, I think that maybe you've, you've not just jumped the shark, you've jumped the entire aquarium. It's demonstrative of how subjective feeling have taken the place of objective fact. What Chelsea Clinton had to say about Elhan Amar was basic objective fact. She was speaking anti-Semitism. Chelsea Clinton called her out on that. And somehow she's now responsible for the Christchurch shooting because she did all of that. But that's how some people feel, and therefore it becomes the truth. And they've been told that they're right and that they're special and that they are, they're wonderful individuals because they go to places like... NYU and because their parents told them they were special. And so objective fact never actually has to be brought into the conversation. Now, that entire clip was incredibly incoherent, and I think it was actually hard to follow because they kept subtly changing the topics and it kept branching off. But if you missed the overall takeaway, it's that the left is bad, everything they ever say or do is bad, and anything that the right does is good and altruistic. That's essentially what they wanted to communicate. Um, and what they said was just batshit insane. There were various snippets of things that were just laughably untrue. So they talk about the college admission scandal, and Ingram opens by saying Generation E believes that they should get into the best colleges, even if they don't have the best grades or the best scores. Nobody is saying that. I have not heard a single person say that we should be allowed to get into the best colleges even if we don't have the best grades or the best scores. If anything, people on the left are actually the ones arguing for real meritocracy where conservatives like you, like you are in favor of the system remaining rigged. You're in favor of the status quo. And then she says, quote, many of these young people, and it's not just the wealthy, grow up to be demanding entitled adults. Now, does she give you an example of this? No, not necessarily. They go on to talk about the college student who confronted Chelsea Clinton. But if you're talking about the college admission scandal and it not just being about elites, which is it is, then you have to provide us with some type of example, even a news story that you cherry-picked, but she gave us nothing. We're so entitled because we dare to ask for policies that other countries around the world have, like Medicare for All. And I know that they didn't explicitly say that, but you can kind of tell that the conversation started to kind of branch off and go in that direction. And it really explicitly went in that direction when Ben Shapiro came on. And he adds, you're not owed anything in this world. And he claims that we think if we don't get it, it's because the system has failed us. So first of all, we are owed certain things. We are owed healthcare. I think that we are owed the ability and opportunity to succeed. That means purchasing power, economic opportunities that previous generations had. And the reason why I say we're entitled to these types of things like healthcare and whatnot is because every single paycheck that we get before we even open it, the government takes money from that. So I think that we actually are entitled and have a right to say, you know what, maybe it's time that my tax dollars benefit me and my children and not just the elites and not just go to never-ending wars. So um, we are entitled.
And if you don't like that, then I don't know what to tell you, Ben. He also says, you know, if we don't get it, it's because the system has failed. Well, the system has failed. We don't live in a meritocracy. And this does go back to the college admission um, question as well. Because think about this. Jared Kushner's father donated $2.5 million to Harvard. And then would you look at that? He got in. So you can be an idiot and a C student and get in and then become president. It happened with George W. Bush. It happened with Donald Trump. And we don't know his grades, but I can guess they're going to be pretty bad because he's kind of a dumb guy. So, I mean, what he tries to do here and what really they both try to do is take this college admission scandal and somehow make it about the left when this is about elites. And the left is the most vocal about taking on elites and getting them to pay their fair share. So, I mean, it doesn't even make sense that they would find a way to blame the left. But, I mean, if there's any blame to go around, it's going to be on the left. And you can bet your ass they're going to find a way to do that. And then they shift the conversation to Chelsea Clinton and how that somehow relates to the entitlement of people who aren't elites. And not Chelsea Clinton. And uh, Ben Shapiro then says, It's demonstrative of how objective feeling has taken the place of objective fact. What Chelsea Clinton had to say about Ilhan Omar was basic objective fact. No, it was subjective. It wasn't objective. It was subjective. Because if you're criticizing APAC and you think that that's tantamount to anti-Semitism and criticism of all Jewish people, then you need to get your head checked. But this is someone who will tell you that there's no such thing as bigotry unless... He says it's bigotry. So everyone is an anti-Semite, but nobody's a bigot, nobody's a homophobe, nobody's racist when there are actually other calls of racism and bigotry. So for example, Ben Shapiro is perfectly fine allowing businesses to discriminate against LGBTQ couples. He's perfectly fine telling his own friend, Dave Rubin, that he wouldn't bake him a cake or even go to an anniversary party because gay weddings are icky. And that's not homophobia, but criticizing a lobbying group is anti-Semitism. I mean, do you understand how disingenuous these people are? This is a double standard. They have a set of standards that apply to you that don't apply to them. And it's comical. I don't know why they're not thinking about how silly they look right now. And he suggests that the student who confronted Chelsea Clinton claimed that she's responsible for the Christchurch attack. I don't think anyone said that. And even she said that she's not blaming Chelsea Clinton directly for the attack. She rightfully called out Chelsea for piling on and contributing to an atmosphere of Islamophobia, where everything Muslims say about Israel is deemed anti-Semitic when Ilhan Omar was talking about the influence of AIPAC. I mean, it's just, that's the point that she was trying to make. But they flip it. The student wasn't calling out Chelsea Clinton's entitlement and white privilege. It's that they're entitled for calling out Chelsea Clinton. Everything is the opposite to them. Yes means no, no means yes, left is right, right is left, up is down, down is up. I mean, everything that they say is basically telling you to deny your lying eyes and what we say is objective fact and what you say is subjective feelings. It's complete bullshit. Now they get into the Christchurch shooting and they play a clip of Eddie Glaude Jr. Jr. on MSNBC. He's one of the only people who actually knows what he's talking about. And he says, Donald Trump didn't directly pull the trigger, but what he's doing is laying the groundwork for these types of Islamophobic attacks. And it's true, but listen to the way they flip it and blame, guess who? The left. Part of what New Zealand represented and represents is in some interesting sort of way, in my view, right, in a wholesale attack 
on what Donald Trump has enabled. I'm not trying to blame what happened in New Zealand on President Trump, mm -hmm. but he has helped create an environment for this sort of carnage to happen. So that's where it's going. So he might not have pulled the trigger, but it's the environment of Trump that created the hate and the intolerance, et cetera, et cetera. That's reverberated across the airwaves, Ben, for the last 72 hours plus, and it's still going. Well, there's certainly a narrative that's being driven by the left when it comes to the Christchurch shooting. Every single person in Western civilization who saw that and was a decent person was appalled by that slaughter, obviously. And the attempt to immediately jump into the manifesto of the killer and then give it the broadest possible coverage by the media to do exactly what the killer wanted, which was to generate all sorts of political controversy in an attempt to tear apart Western civilization, is really quite despicable. And one of the things that I, I thought was, was so fascinating, if you actually take a look at the manifesto, which I, recognize, which I recommend everyone should not, but if you actually take a look, what the killer does is he, he says essentially Western civilization is white people. And what you see from the intersectional left is a similar perception of what Western civilization is. Western civilization is a hierarchical system uh -huh. of racial domination. That's not what the West is at all, which is why we all, as civilized human beings, mourn the slaughter of innocent people, no matter what their religion, living in our civilization. The mental gymnastics that you have to do to say that a far-right fascist who believes in a white ethnostate is more comparable to the left, I mean, I don't even know what to say about that. I almost want to applaud him for saying that with a straight face. So Ben Shapiro says, the killer claims Western civilization is white people, and what you see from the intersectional left is the West is a hierarchical system of racial domination. Now, first of all, intersectional left it doesn't mean anything. You made that word up. That's not a thing. There's no such thing as the intersectional left. What does that even mean? Do you know what the word intersectional means? Intersectional refers to somebody's individual identity. You have an intersectional identity if you belong to two marginalized groups, black and Muslim, gay and female. That's what intersectional means. So to use it as this all-encompassing term and a descriptor for the left, it shows that he's just trying to throw out these buzzwords like cultural Marxist and uh, postmodern neo-Marxist neo or whatever the fuck Jordan Peterson and all of these right-wing frauds use to try to demonize the left. It's a vacuous buzzword that has no meaning whatsoever. You're just trying to use that word that the right-wing audience of Fox News won't understand, but they'll think you sound intelligent when people who are actually educated know you sound like a dumbass. He then creates a straw man of the left's argument about Western culture. He made this up. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I've never heard a leftist talk about Western culture in this way. The left's criticism overall is rarely about Western culture itself. It's about power structures and institutions. And we often look towards other Western economic systems like those in Scandinavia as a correct model. So we're not even necessarily talking about Western culture. Western culture is something that right-wingers are more fascinated about because they talk about wanting to save Western culture and stop the browning of America. They're the ones who are concerned about Western culture, but they claim that we're talking about Western culture. It's just, it's preposterous. I don't give a fuck about Western culture. I care about human culture and having us improve the lives of normal working class human beings. That's what I care about. So, I mean, they just, they make arguments up and they claim this is what we believe. It's a straw man. And then they argue against the straw man they've created when we're not actually saying that. They create these 
artificial descriptions that don't mean anything, like intersectional left, to try to attack us for, I don't even know what the reason would be to use the words intersectional and attribute that to the left, but I mean, nonetheless, he's trying to get us somehow, but they just come off as unhinged, and this entire discussion was incoherent. But by and large, if you paid attention, they blamed the left for the college admission scandal when it was really about rich elites. I don't know if they're on the right or the left, but it's certainly not the left that, you know, you can deem the new left today in progressives. They blamed the NYU student who confronted Chelsea for being entitled and didn't mention Chelsea Clinton's entitlement. And they claimed that a far-right fascist terrorist is more comparable to uh, the left since their criticism of Western culture is similar to his. Do you get the overall takeaway? The left is bad at all times. Any and everything they ever say is wrong. And the right is always right. There's no room for nuance. There's no room for an actual in-depth analysis. It's all vacuous buzzwords like cultural Marxism and intersectional left and entitlement. And there's no specific examples. They're not using the arguments of a supposed entitled Generation E person. They're not citing a person on the left who's saying Western culture is about racial domination, they're making all of this up because the uneducated Fox News audience is going to accept it and buy it hook, line, and sinker. So this is what media bias and propaganda looks like. Fox News host Kennedy, who apparently only has one name, decided to give us the rundown about the Bernie 2020 campaign, and she wanted to make the case as to why we shouldn't support Bernie Sanders. Now, what she does here is attempt something that very few Fox News hosts try, because it usually ends in complete failure. She tries comedy, and what you are going to see here, expectedly, is for her to bomb bad and it just turns out into a complete cringe fest take a look socialism has been gaining traction over the last four years since dinosaur diet communist bernie sanders foisted himself onto the political scene like other septuagenarian has-beens joe biden and hillary clinton he's got summit fever and only the presidency will quiet the inner screams of disappointment the problem with bernie's fever is the blood has permanently rushed to his nether bits as this impossible socialistic fetish leaves his brain deprived and empty that so many free-spending hussies are crowding his turf and stealing all his great ideas only further maddens the mad professor when asked about the crowded progressive field with so many vultures picking at his political carcass and why does he need to run bernard asked why do they need to run oh snap girl mm -hmm. he was also asked about the daunting socialist uh, the idea of socialism and shot back i think what we have to do and i will be doing it is to do a better job maybe in explaining what we mean by socialism, democratic socialism. Well, that doesn't soften the blow. Qualifying the power and cash grab and limiting people's economic mobility and freedom as somehow democratic. It's okay, Your Honor. It wasn't murder. It was vegan murder. Ah, when you are forced to pay for everyone's health insurance and universal basic income and higher utility bills, and when you can no longer choose what you pay your employees, when you don't have a say in what materials go into your products, is that democratic? No, that's socialist. 
These things in the green new era are not mere suggestions or government spitballing. They will be coercively enforced. And if you are non-compliant, you will be fined. And if you don't pay, you will go to jail. But at least that's not authoritarian. Right. When Bernie's not lying about socialism, he's going, but, but Sweden. Yes, he has a scando obsession and thinks he could turn the U.S. into an Ikea catalog. The problem is Denmark, Sweden, and the rest of Scandinavia have turned their economies into free market engines. They tax the middle class. They have cost-sharing programs that dimwits in the U.S. neither grasp nor admit to. And their average GDP military expenditure is just over 1%. Denmark spends $3.8 billion a year on defense. We spend almost $700 billion. All the Swedish meatballs in the world will never make a direct comparison between Scandinavia and the U.S., mostly because the socialist boobs in this country are too afraid of the free market. And that's the memo. That was so bad. <laughs> that was so bad. Holy shit. Can we bring up the um, tweet from Paul Joseph Watson about how the right is becoming better at comedy and it's making lefties nervous? Because I think it's relevant again. <laughs> Let's get to some of her um, one-liners here. Bernie Sanders is dinosaur diet communist. Okay. Quote, the blood has permanently rushed to his nether bits, edgy, as his impossible socialistic fetish leaves his brain deprived and empty. Ha! Game! Okay. Um, <laughs> when it comes to him identifying as a democratic socialist. Well, that doesn't soften the blow. Qualifying the power and cash grab and limiting people's economic mobility and freedom as somehow democratic, it's okay, your honor, it wasn't murder. It was vegan murder. I don't know. I've, I don't know. <laughs> um, I love how she doesn't realize that what she's describing here is capitalism because some of the policies that Bernie Sanders is advocating for that she deems socialist have already been implemented for decades in Canada. And yet they have more social mobility than Americans. It's no longer the American dream, it's the Canadian dream. She probably doesn't understand this or maybe she knows this and gets it, but she's lying to you. Either way, that was an incredibly dumb point. Um, when it comes to freedom, she claims that Bernie Sanders and the left doesn't believe in freedom, but actually it's her that doesn't believe in freedom. Because if you're okay with capitalism's corporate control and coup of our democratic institutions, frankly, then you don't believe in freedom. That's not freedom. Begging your insurance company to cover a procedure you need so you don't die when you're already paying them a monthly premium, that isn't freedom. Having private corporations frack in your backyard and poison your water, how is that freedom? Can explain how that's freedom. So what she's not telling you is that she's not necessarily in favor of freedom in general. She's in favor of one type of supposed freedom. She wants freedom from government at all costs. But in a capitalistic system, if you want full freedom from government, 
that means you will be enslaved by large multinational corporations. And she kind of alludes to this because she says, when you no longer choose what to, when you can no longer choose what you want to pay your employees and when the government has a say over what types of materials go into their products, how is that democratic? So she said it right there. She's talking about the minimum wage. She's talking about the government and the FDA regulating what types of substances they put into our food and drinks. And to her, that isn't freedom. That's authoritarianism. So in her view, it's not social democracy or democratic socialism. I don't think she knows the difference. If you mandate that corporations have to pay their workers a living wage, or if you mandate that they can't put substances in our food that they sell to us that poison us, that's just not freedom to her. So in her view, freedom is allowing these large multinational corporations to run amok and put poisonous substances in our food and drinks and not allow the FDA to regulate them because in her view, it's perfectly fine if they want to cut a couple of corners and save a few bucks by jeopardizing our health. But the implication is that her view of freedom is so broad, it's so amorphous, that it would allow freedom to eat itself. Because when you allow for unfettered freedom, just generally speaking, then what that does that end up doing? It imposes on other people's freedoms. If I have the freedom to punch people in the face, that obviously imposes on their freedoms. If I have the freedom to own a nuke and I'm a psychopath, I'm not. If I have the freedom to own a nuke, then obviously that potentially imposes on other people's freedoms. So there's no such thing as absolute freedom. We're all restricted in some ways, but if we're restricted in ways, specifically if large multinational corporations are restricted in ways where they don't overly exploit workers and have to pay them a living wage, where they don't rip us off and poison us, then I think that's a good thing. I think that their freedom to do that should be restricted because that helps us live free lives ourselves if these corporations can't poison us. I mean, think about this. It was just a couple of months ago when Donald Trump decided to postpone water regulations for farmers and what they use on lettuce and what happened. That led to a nationwide E. coli outbreak. But if you allow Kennedy to have her way, that's what would happen. That's essentially what she's advocating for. And it's either dumb or disingenuous. I don't know what it is, but either way, that view of freedom, what you call freedom, it doesn't sound amazing. Now, she actually, to her credit, doesn't invoke Venezuela, but she does talk about social democracies in Scandinavia that Bernie Sanders always cites as kind of an example of what we want to achieve here at home. And what she does there is try to paint this picture that, well, you know, it's not as peachy keen as progressives in the United States want you to believe. And this is the grand finale because she says they only have a defense budget that's 1% of their GDP. They only spend $3.8 million on the military. So that's how they're able to afford these social safety net programs. Gotcha. I don't think she realizes that progressives are some of the loudest people who call for us to cut the military budget so we can actually fund social safety net programs. So by telling us this, it's not a gotcha. You're not going to dissuade us from supporting social democracy. You're going to encourage us because that's what we should be doing. They're right. But she paints it as a negative, like a buffoon, because apparently she thinks 
we should be spending, what now, 50-60% of our discretionary budget on the military? It's absurd. Absolutely absurd. And let me ask you this, Kennedy. If you are supposedly against big government, because big government equals socialism, but the military is a part of the government and you want a really, really big military, but government is socialism... Are you not in favor of socialism yourself in the form of having a gigantic military? <laughs> in her worldview, spending less on the military in order to fund social safety net programs is a bad thing because she's someone who, she doesn't have to think about social safety net programs because she probably makes millions of dollars each year being a propagandist for Fox News. So it's kind of one of those situations where she's like, hey, fuck you all, I got mine. So why would I care about social safety net programs when I'm doing just fine? I could pay my rent. I'm never hungry. I don't have to worry about daycare and the cost of that. So she gets to worry about these superficial things like the military, which really it doesn't matter. The military, we spend so much on it that we spend more than the next seven countries combined, most of which are our allies, and it's just completely unnecessary. And even if we cut military spending in half, we'd still be spending more than all of our rivals. So I think that this clip is evidence that conservatives have got to stop trying comedy. Bernie Sanders 2020 presidential campaign recently made history when they announced that their staffers would be the first ever in the history of presidential campaigns to unionize, which I think is fantastic. And they additionally also announced that they'd be adding 15 new individuals to the team, 10 of which are women, including Brianna Joy Gray, who's going to be acting as his national press secretary, Sarah Badawi, who will be his national political director, and there's plenty of others. And I'm all for it because I, I really think that his team is shaping up to be progressive Avengers, and I really am confident in these people and their ability to run a fantastic campaign. However, there's some individuals in the mainstream media who are, we'll say, less enthusiastic about one specific hire that Bernie Sanders recently made. And the individual who they're freaking out about is journalist David Sirota, who's a longtime Bernie Sanders backer. He's been outspoken about the fact that he's a supporter of Bernie Sanders, but the reason why they're against him is because, as Talking Points Memo puts it, he's a fierce critic of Sanders' opponents, and if you want things to remain civil, then you probably shouldn't hire somebody who's going to be your, quote, attack dog, as Edward Isaac Dover of The Atlantic puts it. Now, it's not just like they're peeved about Bernie hiring David Sirota because he's supposedly overly aggressive and acts as, a, as an attack dog to Bernie, but the reason why they're against him is because they claim that David Sirota lacks journalistic integrity because while he was criticizing all of Bernie Sanders' opponents, he wasn't disclosing that he was tied to Bernie financially. He worked for Bernie Sanders and did not disclose that fact. And additionally, he then went on to, after announcing that he was hired, delete thousands of tweets that hid evidence that he was attacking Sanders' opponents 
while still working for Bernie Sanders. So there are so many allegations and claims to unpack here. But first, let's talk about the supposedly aggressive nature of Bernie's 2016 campaign. As Edward Isaac Dovier of The Atlantic writes, shortly before he gave speeches launching his 2020 campaign earlier this month, Bernie Sanders emailed his supporters urging them to do our very best to engage respectfully with our Democratic opponents, talking about the issues we are fighting for, not about personalities or past grievances. I want to be clear that I condemn bullying and harassment of any kind and in any space. What he didn't include was that one of the people already advising him and helping him write those launch speeches is one of his most famously aggressive supporters online. The online fury of Sanders supporters was one of the most defining characteristics of his 2016 campaign. Sanders himself said he is sensitive to that, as well as to accusations that he created divisions within the Democratic Party during his 2016 run against Hillary Clinton. Now, just by reading those paragraphs, ask yourself this question. Do you think this journalist is for or against Bernie Sanders? I think it's evident. He is trying to construct this narrative that Bernie Sanders supporters were uniquely aggressive when that is a disprovable lie that was spread by the mainstream media before. And Vox even conducted a study where they found out that Hillary Clinton supporters were actually more aggressive online than Bernie Sanders supporters. But what this journalist here is trying to do is lend credence to the claim that this Bernie bro myth actually is still feasible and that Bernie Sanders supporters are uniquely aggressive and everyone else is just angels and they're being victimized by Bernie Sanders supporters. And the only reason why Bernie Sanders decided to come out and condemn online bullying and harassment is because it was obviously the case that he was trying to placate his critics. But Kyle Kalinske pointed this out as well as I did that he shouldn't have done that because by condemning harassment as if your supporters are unique and they're the only ones culpable there, what you're doing is you are validating these false claims and you are legitimizing these false narratives. So Bernie should have never done that and this is why. Because now they're saying, well look, even Bernie admits that his supporters were overly aggressive. And it was one of the most defining characteristics of his campaign. Unbelievable. So let's get to David Sirota specifically, because the way that they make it seem is like he's comparable to someone like David Brock, who was an attack dog and smear merchant, really, for Hillary Clinton. But what they describe as attacks aren't attacks in actuality. They're just criticisms that are objective of Bernie Sanders' 2020 opponents. So he's accused Harris of giving in to big donors and changing her stance on healthcare and questioned how she will defend and define being tough on crime. He responded to Booker getting into the race by reminding people of the New Jersey Senator's defense of Bain Capital, Mitt Romney's former company in 2012, and a 2017 vote favored by the pharmaceutical industry that has become a big target for Sanders and his supporters, responding to an NBC News op-ed in January calling Biden the Democrats' best chance to beat Trump. Sirota highlighted that the author used to work for the American Legislative Exchange Council and wrote that Biden was just in 
endorsed by a former spokesperson for the group that pushes right-wing legislation in state capitals across the country. Reacting to a CNBC article about Gillibrand's outreach to big donors, he wrote at the beginning of February, Welcome to the Oligarchy, and attacked her for the time she spent at a law firm with the tobacco company Philip Morris as a client. Now, in addition to those attacks, we all know about the more recent kerfuffle where he supposedly attacked Beto O'Rourke in a Capital and Main article by simply pointing out his abysmal record. He highlighted the times that Beto O'Rourke sided with Republicans over his own party and that to them constitutes an aggressive attack. So all of these supposedly aggressive attacks by David Sirota, they're nothing more than objective, substantive criticisms of the candidate's own records themselves. And wait for it, that's important. We should be doing that. And journalists should be encouraging us to look through the records and properly vetting these candidates. There's nothing wrong with that during primary season. But they're not necessarily against any and all attacks because we know firsthand that mainstream media pundits love attacks. They say nothing about attacks on Bernie Sanders. But what they really want and what they're pushing for specifically is for us to unilaterally disarm while they continue attacking Bernie Sanders as a socialist. They have no problems with anti-Bernie hater Jonathan Chait pondering if Bernie Sanders will, you know, maybe just split the Democratic Party again in 2020. That's not an attack to them. That's not aggression to them. They don't mind Barry Weiss going on Joe Rogan's podcast, smearing Tulsi Gabbard as an Assad apologist when she only went to Syria to literally advocate for peace. They have no problem with those attacks. It's just the attacks against the candidates that they support. So in other words, they can dish it, but they can't take it. And if they can get you to feel guilty about the fact that you're concerned about the red flags that we're finding in the records of other candidates, then they've accomplished what they sought to do. They've gotten you to think about unilateral disarmament. And that's not going to happen. So they can try to pretend as if we're uniquely aggressive, but understand that's not backed up by evidence. Because what constitutes aggression in their view is a substantive criticism of the candidate's own records. And what makes this a double standard is that we're not allowed to do this to the candidates that they support, but they're allowed to do it to the candidates that we support. And it's not like their criticisms are even substantive. Oftentimes, they're just smears. So, getting to the second component of the attack, because I think that it's safe to say that to allege that David Sirota is an attack dog of Bernie Sanders is a stretch, but they contend that he deleted 20,000 tweets on the day he was hired, and the author explains that he obviously deleted all of these tweets because he wanted to hide these tweets because they were attacks that he lobbed against other candidates while he was secretly colluding with Bernie Sanders, and because he deleted these tweets, he must have had something to hide. Now, to be fair, David Sirota probably should have known better that deleting thousands of tweets on the day that there's big news announced about you, it's going to arouse suspicion. So that was his first mistake. But let's get to this accusation, which I think is really serious because it throws David Sirota's integrity as a journalist into question. So this is a very serious accusation that the author is lobbing here against David Sirota. 
So what the article tries to establish here is that David Sirota is someone who is sleazy. He lacks journalistic integrity because he didn't disclose his ties to Bernie Sanders while writing articles about other candidates, presumably at the behest of Bernie Sanders. But the timeline is a little bit unclear because once Sirota was officially in contact with the Sanders team in January, he then informed The Guardian, which was his employer, that he was in contact and he stopped writing columns after that point. Um, and then he wasn't officially hired until March. Now, there's one article in Capital in Maine that he published after he was in contact with the Sanders team and talking about, you know, po possibly joining the team. You can say that he should have disclosed it at that point, but I actually don't really think that's too big of a deal because he wrote an article that doesn't have anything to do with Bernie Sanders. It was an interview with Bill de Blasio. So you can make the case that, yeah, he should have been transparent there. But overall, from what we know, David Sirota stopped writing articles once he was in talks to officially join the Sanders campaign. And he specifically stopped writing articles about the other candidates. But in this Atlantic piece by Edward Isaac Dovier, it also reports that David Sirota was in contact with certain aides of Bernie Sanders' team through 2018. Now, the problem with this claim here is that we have no evidence that David Sirota was talking to Sanders' aides about potentially being employed by the Sanders team. For all we know, he was talking to them for journalistic reasons. So, we don't know, but I do think that David Sirota should probably come out and clarify, just so that way it doesn't arouse any more suspicion and there's less speculation. But as far as we know, what we've established so far is that David Sirota was only officially in talks with the Sanders team in January, and then he stopped writing articles at that point and then officially joined the Sanders team in March. So, as far as we know, He's following journalistic standards, and he has integrity. However, what Edward Isaac Dovier points out on Twitter is a particular tweet where David Sirota says that people were speculating about his attack on Beto O'Rourke being motivated by something nefarious. Maybe he's motivated because he's working for Bernie Sanders, and he's being overly critical of Sanders' opponents under the guise of objective journalism when he is simply in the tank for Bernie Sanders. He was acting as a covert Sanders surrogate. And the author explains in this tweet here, saying, here's another tweet deleted last night in which Bernie Sanders' speechwriter and previously undisclosed advisor wrote that people who accused him of having motives in digging in on O'Rourke were, quote, deranged and or run running a deliberate disinformation campaign. Now, if you are covertly working for a candidate and you are writing articles criticizing his presumptive opponents, then I do think it would be disingenuous if you call out people for questioning your motives. I think that that would have been fair, but there's one problem, and you kind of discover this problem by taking a closer look at the screenshot of David Sirota's tweet that Edward Isaac Dovier posted. Do you notice anything odd here? Anything at all? Anything out of place? If not, let's get a little bit closer. Notice anything now about this screenshot that just kind of stands out to you? No? Well, let's get even closer. Now, if you look in the right-hand corner there, what you can see is that there's a little bit of a smudge left over by Edward Isaac Dover, literally photoshopping out the date of David Sirota's tweet. 
gotcha, bitch. What reason would Edward Isaac Dover have to Photoshop the date out of David Sirota's tweet? He presumably did that because he wanted you to think that David Sirota made this tweet when he was already in contact with Bernie Sanders' team about joining the team. However, this tweet was made before David Sirota was in contact with Bernie Sanders' team, where he had no underlying motives as an employee of Bernie to write the article about Beto O'Rourke. And as Natalie Shore points out, a Google search shows that this tweet was posted on 1225, which again predates the alleged onset of contact between Sirota and the Sanders campaign. He didn't want you to see that David Sirota made this tweet before he was in talks to be hired by Sanders' team, when it actually was not correct to question his motives or question whether or not he was motivated to write that article about Beto O'Rourke as an employee of Sanders, because at that point, he was not in contact with the Sanders team. So take a moment and just think about the irony here of this attack on David Sirota. He's being criticized for lacking journalistic integrity. Meanwhile, what Edward Isaac Dover is doing is he's photoshopping the date out of a tweet in a screenshot in order to mislead you into believing that David Sirota was lying about having deeper motivations about writing that article. And another irony is that it was already evident that David Sirota was a Sanders supporter. He was open about that. And we all knew where he stands as he wrote these articles, but they were still credible. And he still maintained journalistic integrity because he was being objective and just providing us with the facts. And meanwhile, you'll see other political hacks write hit pieces about Bernie Sanders, and they won't tell you where they stand. They'll try to pass partisan hit pieces off as objective pieces of journalism, all while claiming that it's everyone else who's being dishonest. So we already knew where David Sirota stood. I think most people knew that he was a supporter of Bernie Sanders. My only question is, since we know where he stands, when will political hacks actually be honest to us about who they support and whether or not they hate Bernie Sanders or not? So this is just an insane story to me. The fact that he would go out of his way to Photoshop the date out of a screenshot, poorly so, by the way, because he's not covering his tracks, in order to get us to believe that David Sirota was lying is just a new level of disingenuous. Now, you can make the case, to be fair, that David Sirota does need to come out and say whether or not he was in talks with Sanders' campaign back in 2018, and uh, specifically what he was talking to Sanders' aides about, and if that was about employment. As far as we know, he was only talking about employment back in January. But to suggest that he is working covertly to smear all of Bernie Sanders' opponents while he's working for Bernie Sanders. There's just no factual basis for this yet. Is him deleting 20,000 tweets something that is um, suspicious and not what you should do if you are savvy with social media? Yeah. But at the same time, does that mean that David Sirota is guilty of anything and is a bad journalist? No. I don't think it does. And is he an attack dog for Bernie Sanders? No. He's doing what a lot of people should be doing 
journalism. Because if you simply report the facts about someone's record who's running for president, that's not just something that's reasonable, but it's necessary. Because going into the voting booth, we need to be educated about their record. We need to know who they voted with, be it Republicans or Democrats, and what they voted for. So by doing that, he's not trying to covertly prop up Bernie Sanders. He's trying to educate people because more information is better than no information. And since everyone else in mainstream media is unwilling to do that, then David Sirota provided us with a service. So they're going to look for everything. Um, this is all par for the course. This was, this was all expected. So this isn't surprising to me. I'm just a little surprised that they would sloppily Photoshop out the date and be that disingenuous in order to make it seem like David Sirota is a liar. Unbelievable. So we finally have a little bit more details about the specifics when it comes to Beta O'Rourke's first day fundraising totals. And it's clear to me now why he didn't want to release these numbers because pretty much like I suspected, he has far less donors individually than Bernie Sanders as far as we know, and the average contribution is much higher than Bernie's. So as CNN reports, Beto O'Rourke says he averaged $47 per donation in his first record-breaking $6.1 million fundraising haul on the first day of his presidential campaign. The former Texas congressman told reporters in New Hampshire on Wednesday that the total came from 128,000 separate donors. O'Rourke's campaign is rejecting donations from political action committees, so the contributions come from individuals. O'Rourke's $47 per donation average matches the average contribution he received in 2018's Texas Senate race, where he smashed all previous Senate campaign fundraising records and raised $80 million. Now, I do also want to draw your attention to a seemingly innocuous detail, and that is individual donors versus unique contributions. Because as Beth puts it, Bernie had 223,000 donors. Beto had 128,000 unique contributions, which means through Dem bundlers, one person could donate several times to artificially inflate numbers. And that is a really important point. Because... Individual donors is different than unique contributions. But with that being said, these numbers, they're still good. This is something that Beto O'Rourke can still brag about. Absolutely, you can't take that away from him. And just the number, 6.1 million, you can't deny that his first day was successful. But for your average contribution to be $47, what that tells me is that it's not as grassroots as Bernie Sanders. Because with Bernie Sanders, you see people chipping in $5 and $1, but his average contribution is $20 more than Bernie's, which means there's a lot of wealthier people or more financially well-off people contributing to Beto O'Rourke's campaign. If you raise $6.1 million, then certainly you have a place in this field, apparently. There's enough people or enough money to propel your campaign, and like it or not, he's going to be in this race for a while. If you can raise $6.1 million in 24 hours, regardless of who that came from, then you do have some fuel in that tank. And I hate to admit it, but it's certainly something that we need to grapple with as Sanders supporters, and we shouldn't try to downplay this. We need to take him as the threat that he is in reality. Because yes, $47 as your average donation, that's embarrassing. That 
it makes it clear why he didn't want to release that number, but still, the fact that he's able to raise this money and the fact that he has a lot of centrists and elites behind him who have more disposable cash... That tells us that we're going to have to work really hard where we can make it up. And hopefully that is in the area of canvassing and phone banking for Bernie Sanders. And you can even text bank if you don't want to talk directly to people. So, you know, I just wanted to share this with you because it's been a pretty big point of discussion on the internet and Twitter. So, yeah, it's not too surprising. I expected him to have less unique contributions. We don't know how many individual donors he had, which I'd guess it's less than the 128k number, but nonetheless, it's still good numbers for him, but um, it's not as grassroots as Bernie. $47 as your average contribution is not as impressive as 27 and raising 5.9 million, but still, he's a threat and we've got to treat him that way. There's currently a special election taking place in North Carolina's 3rd Congressional District, and GOP contender Eric Rouse just put out an ad that isn't just dumb and dishonest, but it's probably the most Republican ad I've ever seen, and it's so absurd that it seems like something that SNL would produce. I'm Eric Rouse. If I ran my business like they run Washington, I'd be broker in jail. When Trump took office, he flipped the switch. Now our economy is booming with more jobs. To keep it going, Trump needs allies to help shoot down these socialist radical agenda. Threatening to take our guns? Government-run health care. And their radical Green New Deal. I'm Eric Rouse, and I approve this message, because in the House, I'll have Trump's back. Ha! Gay! I have so much to say about that short ad. Um, first of all, if you're a Republican, how do you not find that insulting? How does that not seem like he's just pandering? I'm shooting a gun. I'm tiff. I'm a Republican and I like guns. I mean, do you not think that that is insulting to your intelligence? I mean, I, I don't get how they buy that and they don't see that as disingenuous and pandering. It makes no sense to me. Second thing I want to say is, can we get some innovation and new ideas and new creativity in these advertisements because how many times has politicians done the same thing you had uh who was it joe manchin shooting a cap and trade bill with a gun you have allison lundergan grimes shooting uh i think the same shit skeets or whatever it is i don't know what it's called but she was shooting a gun in her ad against mitch mcconnell and it's just it's tired it's played out if you're going to take these bills and destroy them, I want to see something new. I want to see some innovation, something revolutionary. Maybe do something nobody's ever done before. Take a dump on a bill, literally. <laughs> uh, hug a flag like Trump does. Just do something new. I mean, it's just, it's so played out. It's so dumb. And I don't get how you can write this ad or pitch this ad and then think, oh, this is a good idea. This is going to make people like me. I mean, maybe this plays well in North Carolina among the GOP base, but I just don't see how they wouldn't see that it's obvious pandering. Now, of course, the ad is incredibly dishonest because he claims that the left wants to uh, ban guns. I mean, how long are they going to claim that we want to ban their guns until something actually happens. For eight years, we had to listen to them say that Obama's coming for their guns. Never happened. 
But just you wait, it's happening sooner or later, so keep voting Republican, keep voting against your own self-interest so you can have your guns. We're not coming for your guns, dude. We don't care. And what he doesn't realize is that all of these things he's talking about, like universal health care, Medicare for all, and the Green New Deal, and gun reform, which is really what we're talking about, which is really the conversation we're having about guns, Americans aren't actually on his side. They're on our side. They're on the progressive side. But yet he calls us radical. So, for example, when you look at the issue of gun reform, six in 10 Americans overall, according to Gallup, support gun reform. Now, that's not a majority of Republicans. But when you go to the question of universal background checks, the overwhelming majority of Republicans support that. In fact, 97% of Americans overall support that. And when it comes to government-run health care, well, 70% of Americans support Medicare for All, including his own party. 51%, a slim majority of Republicans, now support Medicare for All. When it comes to the Green New Deal, when you look at numbers on that, 92% of Americans overall support that, including 64% of Republicans. So as you invoke socialism, which I doubt he'd be able to define, and you call us the radicals, well, you have to realize that this is no longer 2004. We're the moderates. You're the radicals. Because if you are against policy proposals that the overwhelming majority of Americans support, then that makes you the outlier. That makes you the fringe. But when you say that we're radicals, you're implying that we're somehow outside of the norm and outside of the bounds of respectability in American politics, when that couldn't be further from the truth. If we have an agenda that's populist, that has support among your own party, then you're the fucking radical, buddy. And this is what bugs me about Republicans, is that they never operate on the basis of facts. It's just their feelings over facts, because they're still pretending that Nobody supports Medicare for all, and the socialist boogeyman will resonate when that couldn't be further from the truth. So this ad is one of the dumbest I've seen in a while. I think it was thoroughly entertaining, not necessarily for the right reasons, but I'm just, I'm shocked that this type of shit still plays well among the GOP base. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. But I don't see how they wouldn't see this and be insulted. What does this guy think I am? An idiot? He's clearly pandering, shooting a gun. What an idiot. He's not one of us. He's an elitist. That's what I think a reasonable Republican would deduce when they see this. But, I mean, who knows? They voted for Trump, so I wouldn't put anything past them. Former UN ambassador, warmonger, and war crime apologist Nikki Haley thought that she'd be able to get Bernie Sanders by responding to one of his tweets about healthcare and deliberately misconstruing the point he was trying to make. So Bernie Sanders tweeted, in the United States, it costs on average $12,000 to have a baby. In Finland, it costs $60. We've got to end the disgrace of our profit-driven healthcare system and pass Medicare for all. Now, the tweet, to any reasonable person, makes perfect sense. In comparison with other first world countries, the healthcare costs are astronomical. So we all get what he was trying to say. However, here's how Nikki Haley supposedly interpreted it. And here's how she tried to get him. 
Alright, Bernie Sanders, you're not the woman having the baby, so I wouldn't be out there talking about skimping on a woman when it comes to childbirth. Trust me. Nice try, though. Healthcare costs are too high, that is true, but comparing us to Finland is ridiculous. Ask them how their healthcare is. You won't like their answer. Hey, moron, maybe take a moment to talk to an American and see what they have to say about our healthcare system. I don't think you're going to like their answer. So for her to suggest that Bernie Sanders was talking about skimping or cuts to spending with regard to healthcare related to childbirth is absolutely absurd because she knows that that's not what he's talking about. And she tried to kind of give herself cover, I think, by saying, sure, healthcare costs are too high, but we know what you were trying to do in that original tweet, Nikki. You were trying to get us to think he wanted to cut healthcare spending when it comes to childbirth, which is completely just factually incorrect. And it's also hypocritical because the administration that you worked for just proposed cuts to healthcare policies, such as Medicare and Medicaid. So not only is she being disingenuous here, but she's also being hypocritical. And this story pisses me off, especially right now, because my niece, who's 20 years old, just had a baby girl, and she's going to be spending months in the NICU and had to have surgery within the first week that she was born, just a couple of days ago. And it's because she was born with a medical condition where her stomach developed into her lungs. So she's had to be on this breathing tube because she can't breathe on her own since the moment she was born. So the problem with America's healthcare system is that my niece, who already has insurance, can't just worry about the health of her baby. She also has to worry about medical bills because having her baby stay in the NICU for months, that's not going to be cheap. She also has to worry about her partner having food while he's there because she'll get meals from the hospital, but he won't, and has to worry about paying bills while their baby is in the hospital this long. So guess what she had to do? She had to start a fucking GoFundMe when she already has health insurance. So don't pretend, Nikki Haley, as if you care about mothers, when women who have insurance still have to worry about going into debt because of situations like this. And what's crazy is that my niece isn't the only person I know currently who has insurance, but still had to create a GoFundMe. My friend, Joy Marie, you all know her. She hosts Savage Joy. She has insurance, but she's fighting with them to cover a particular procedure that she needs, and they won't, so she had to do a GoFundMe. So this is what we have to deal with. So Nikki Haley needs to talk to an American about our current healthcare system, because it's clear she's ignorant. Now, let me link you to the GoFundMes to my niece, Megan, and my friend, Joy. Hopefully, you will be encouraged to chip in a buck or two, because this is unfortunately the system where we live in. But the point is that we shouldn't half to do this. People in America should not have to resort to GoFundMe for healthcare, and they especially shouldn't have to do that if they already have health insurance. But there are 25 million Americans who are underinsured, meaning they have insurance, but if they need a particular procedure or they're going to be ramping up a pretty big medical bill, well, it may very well be the case and will likely be the case that they're still going to have to pay out of pocket because their health insurance provider isn't going to cover everything. So the situation we have in America is absurd. And when Nikki Haley ignorantly tells you to talk to someone from Finland about their health care, which assumes she thinks that 
ours is better than theirs? Well, I just love the response because people from Finland didn't hesitate to weigh in. One person says, Nikki, we have two children, oldest born in US and younger one in Finland. You should ask my wife. You would not like her answer. Another person says, it's pretty great. Thanks for asking. Another person says, I'm a Finn. I have been educated by Finnish public education system. I'm a director with a master's in economics. I have two children born in public hospitals. Our healthcare system is giving us excellent service. Finland was ranked yesterday the happiest country in the world. So it turns out, Nikki, that when you actually talk to people from Finland about their healthcare system... They love it. And it's not just that they love it, but this is backed up by data that it's actually demonstrably better than ours. Because as Emily Tampkin of the Washington Post explains, a global burden of disease study published last year found that Finland had one of the best healthcare systems in the world. According to that study, Finland, Switzerland, and Iceland have the best quality and most egalitarian systems, and of the top nations, Finland's healthcare had improved the most in recent years. According to the same study, the United States had the world's most expensive healthcare system. U.S. News and World Report declared Finland to have the best public healthcare system. In a 2014 study on infant mortality in the United States and Europe, Finland had the lowest rate and the United States had the highest. Finland's permanent representative to the United Nations, not content to let those studies speak for themselves, also pointed out to Haley that Finland's maternal mortality is, according to the World Health Organization, the lowest in the world and that Per OECD, Finland has the second lowest mortality from cancer of European Union countries. So what Nikki Haley ended up doing by responding to Bernie Sanders and deliberately misconstruing the point that he was trying to make, the obvious point that he was trying to make, was she ended up catalyzing a discussion about just how wonderful Finland's healthcare system is. So to say that this attack on Bernie backfired would be an understatement because she downright face-planted. And it's because if you're going to talk about healthcare and you want to cite statistics or facts, you're going to lose 10 times out of 10 because when we say that Scandinavia does it better in a number of areas, we have data on our sides to back up that claim. Now, there are some people already responding, saying, well, yeah, Finland is doing really well because their population size is a fraction of the United States's. So obviously that means we can't possibly make our system as good as Finland's. Except that's bullshit because the amount of revenue a country generates from its population will be proportional to its population size. So even if we may have millions more citizens in the United States than Finland, well, that also means that we have more money. So of course, we can do what they're doing here. It's just that there's always some lame excuse that somebody's going to bring up to convince you that what we have is better than everyone else. When we are the only modern first world country who doesn't do what everyone else does and we spend more per capita than them, and we get worse results. So you can't even argue anymore about Medicare for All and the fundamentals of it and just how beneficial it would be to improving our healthcare system, both in quality and cost. But they're still going to lie because that's all they got.
But unfortunately for them, it's not working because 70% of the country now supports Medicare for all. And that includes 51% of Republicans. So her own party no longer agrees with her. They agree with us. So if you are going to try to stop the momentum we have, you're going to have to do better than misconstruing our points about Medicare for all because we see right through it. Jamie Dimon, who is the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, recently commented on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal, and he claimed that it isn't very intelligent. Now, it's interesting that all of these frauds on Wall Street who crashed the economy and are now fear-mongering about the Green New Deal's potential impact on the economy as if they care about the economy and not their own short-term profits, they're now explaining that you know, it could be the case that if we get too bold when it comes to climate change, this could harm the economy. Okay, but you dipshits do realize that if the planet becomes uninhabitable, the economy ceases to exist altogether, as does all of humanity. Like, you do realize that, right? Climate change poses an existential threat, and without a habitable planet, the economy itself cannot exist. They don't get that because they don't want any plan to be codified into law that could potentially hurt their short-term profits. So obviously, this is an incredibly myopic and short-sighted way to view a global crisis that could lead to the extinction of the human race. But nonetheless, to them, all they care about is making more money. They don't care at all about the planet that we live on because these old farts will be dead long before we see any of the most catastrophic consequences of climate change. So these are the people who are supposedly serious people. They're the adults who are telling us that our plan to aggressively take on climate change, well, that's what's not intelligent. Hey, moron, What's unintelligent is to do nothing as the planet burns to a fucking crisp. If we had an asteroid headed towards us, who would be unintelligent? The people who are choosing to take action or not take action. So you're not the serious person. You're not the adult. You're the dipshit who is perfectly fine with the planet becoming uninhabitable and all of us dying because in no way would you risk hurting short-term profits of large multinational corporations. Well, I say, fuck that and fuck you, Jamie Dimon. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out and she explained why he's not a serious person in reality. And she explained why, when it comes to climate change, nobody should be taking anything that Jamie Dimon says seriously. Because as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reports, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez reminded J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon of his bank's massive investments in oil and gas development projects after Dimon suggested the Green New Deal is not an intelligent solution to the climate crisis. J.P. Morgan agreed to pay out $13 billion over its massive role in mortgage schemes in the 2008 recession. Ocasio-Cortez, freshman Democratic Congress, 
Congresswoman from New York said in a tweet Wednesday. They also finance major fossil fuel pipelines. It's big money. So maybe they aren't the best authority on prioritizing economic well-being of everyday people and the planet, she added. According to a report card released Wednesday by a coalition of environmental groups, J.P. Morgan invested $195.66 billion in oil and gas companies between 2016 and 2018, making the Wall Street Bank the world's top funder of fossil fuels by a wide margin. Ocasio-Cortez's tweet came after Diamond suggested in a CNN interview Tuesday that the Green New Deal would harm the economy and the American public. Can you focus on climate change in an intelligent way that doesn't damage the economy? Yes, you can. It's called CO2 emission taxes or trading, Diamond said. There are a couple of ways to do it, so you better do it wisely because you could hurt the economy, which hurts everybody. On Twitter, the progressive advocacy group Justice Democrats said the proposals Diamond mentioned are nowhere near the scale of what the climate crisis requires. And that's exactly it. The people who don't support the Green New Deal, they're saying, well, I think we should take action. They don't want to be grouped in with all of the climate change deniers. But what you fail to realize is that we have a very short timeline with which we need to act. The IPCC gave us 12 years. If we don't take substantial action within 12 years, then the planet will warm by 2 degrees Celsius, thus making catastrophic climate change inevitable. Now, even if we do take bold action, catastrophic climate change may still come to fruition. But the point is that we need to do what we can to save the planet because we've got one. One habitable planet. And we shouldn't just be investing in climate change mitigation, but we need to be investing in adaptation as well, because climate change is already here. We're seeing the effects of hurricanes becoming basically a yearly phenomenon. It ravaged Puerto Rico, Texas. We're seeing more extreme weather patterns, and everything that scientists told us would happen is happening. But nobody's taking this seriously in power, and the ones who are claiming to take it seriously aren't taking it seriously enough, and they lack the urgency needed to address this issue. So all of these people who are telling us that the Green New Deal is not ambitious and, you know, maybe it's not to my liking, but I do like the timeline, then make this a concerted effort. Write your name on it and improve it. Because the Green New Deal, as it stands, is a framework. It essentially aims to take action within 12 years. And that's what is needed to address climate change. And it's honestly the bare minimum, really. So, I mean, the fact that someone who is literally, he has a vested interest in not taking action because his bank has investments in oil and gas companies, it just goes to show you that this is what happens when you allow a capitalist system to exist with almost no oversight. You not only kill democracy because capitalism seeps into our democratic institutions, you ultimately end up possibly killing the entire planet. Yeah, well, I say um, to hell with that. We've still got time to act and to all of the naysayers, put up or shut up. If you don't like the Green New Deal, 
propose something as equally ambitious. But they won't do that because they don't want us to take action in spite of what they'll tell us. They just want to appear more reasonable when in actuality, they're not reasonable. They're shills. So I took my mother to see Deep Throat. Deep, 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 deep. So I'll admit, I had absolutely no interest in talking about the CNN town hall with John Hickenlooper, but then I watched it and then I thought, oh my God, how can I not talk about this after seeing how absurd it was? So initially my expectations were that it would just be boring because he's really a milquetoast center-right candidate. I have no interest really in hearing what he has to say. However, it didn't necessarily go in the way that, that I thought it would, um, because it got really weird. So for those of you clicking on this video, hoping to hear about policy substance, I wholeheartedly apologize because this is going to be one of those segments where you're not going to see very much policy substance. Um, but to give you the rundown so nobody's disappointed, he is against the death penalty. He's against legalizing marijuana nationwide, although he supports states doing it. He's against Medicare for All, and he supports civilian oversight committees in order to stop police brutality against black Americans. And he also talked about a lot of other policies, and he also watched porn with his mom once. Wait, what? <laughs> I, I cannot get over this. I, I can't get over this. In this town hall, you're going to see him talk about watching porn with his mom. A presidential candidate will do that. But before we get to that, first, I want to talk about one of the rebuttals he had to a question about him potentially choosing a woman as a running mate. Some of your male competitors have vowed to put a woman on the ticket. Yes or no? Would you do the same? Well, again, uh, of course. But I think that we should be, well, I'll, I'll ask you another question. How come we Wait, aren't I'm ask asking the question? I know. <laughs> I know, but how come we're not asking we're not asking more often the women, would you be willing to put a man on the ticket? We're not asking that because there's already been 45 male vice presidents and there's been zero female vice presidents. Now, that's not to say that we should prioritize identity above qualifications and policy substance because, of course, that is less important. I certainly wouldn't vote for someone like Sarah Palin or Carly Fiorina just because they're women, obviously. But the point is that there are enough qualified progressive women, which he's not going to choose a progressive, but there are enough women that you can choose. And if we have the opportunity to do that, if the qualifications and the policy substance is there, then I think you should prioritize choosing a woman as your running mate, because I think it's important that we do boost representation and make our country more equitable. So his response there, it just tells me that he is incredibly out of touch and you get the sense really that he is out of touch because he's running on a platform that would only be progressive perhaps in the 90s if even but even back then i think his platform would be relatively milquetoast so he's running at a time when there's this anti-establishment fervor in the country and what he's bringing to the table is more of the same he's saying i will get in and protect the status quo he's not explicitly saying that to be clear but that's essentially 
what is functionally going to happen if he's elected. So I've got no interest in him as a candidate. So with that being said, we've got all the substance out of the way. We are now officially entering the no substance zone. So it is safe to close out of the video if you don't want to hear me talking about John Hickenlooper taking his <laughs> taking his mom to see Deep Throat. So... <laughs> It's like half nauseating, half so absurd that I can't help but laugh and giggle over this. So here's the clip. He's asked the question by Dana Bash, and he's going to give a really long, drawn-out answer as to how this happened and what possessed him to take his mom to see Deep Throat. Take a look. You've been looking at uh, your memoir, and you have a lot of interesting stories in that book. One of them is about the time you went to see an X-rated movie oh. with your mother. You have the floor, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much for that question. Anytime. Um, I thought it was better to write a book to let people really see who you were and, and the dumb things you did as well as the smart things. And, and where is that on the <laughs> that's spectrum? On the dumb side. Okay. I, I was the youngest of four, and as I said, my dad died uh, right after I turned eight, and my mother and I had a pretty tempestuous relationship. She was just the most amazing person, and, and I went off to college, and, and for the first time, she was alone in the house, and I didn't realize how powerful that was until I got home at Thanksgiving, and I promised, I called a friend in Philadelphia, and these were, ex I didn't know what an ex-movie was. We thought it was a little naughty, but we didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> I, I, again, you got to understand, I was 18 years old, and so... I came home, and my mother hated to cook. I mean, she, she was just a strong, powerful woman who got stuff done in her own right. And I got home, and she had this huge dinner laid out. And I said, oh, I promised, you know, I promised Jed that we would go to the, the movie theater and see this, this new movie. Uh, you want to come? And I, uh, it's an X movie, I don't know, I, you know, I just, and she, I was sure that she wouldn't say no. I made a mistake. And she said, I'd love to go, because she didn't want to be left alone in the house again. It was a pretty famous movie, too. So I took my mother to see Deep Throat. And, <laughs> and, and, and to her credit, the first scene is... <laughs> I didn't ask the question. But, but I will tell you, I will tell you that my mother, my mother was... Uh, I'm, I'm sure she was mortified. And, and I said repeatedly, I think we should leave, I think we should go. And my mother was the kind of person that rarely went to a movie. She thought almost every movie would get on TV. Uh, obviously not this one. Uh, but she was, she really, once she paid, she was going to stay. And, and at the end, she knew that I was humiliated. And as we drove home, uh, and you know how the dashboard in the old cars had that kind of green light? And, and I, you know, she, I asked her, I said, well, that was some experience. And she goes, she says, well, I thought the lighting was very good in the movie. <laughs> Okay, so let's try to unpack this a little bit. First of all, he claims he didn't 
really know what an X-rated movie was, and he assumed that it was a little bit naughty, but he didn't think it would be that bad, and you have to remember, he was only 18 years old. You know, these innocent 18-year-olds who wouldn't think that a movie titled Deep Throat was risque at all? I mean, I'm not buying it. He then admits that he invited his mother to go along expecting her fully to reject the invitation and rather than making up some excuse to get her to not go along or maybe taking her to see something else, he takes her to see the fucking movie. He actually took her to see Deep Throat. Holy fucking shit. And they watch the whole thing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the new weirdest moment in politics. I think my previous most weird moment was when Ted Cruz decided to eat a tonsil stone or a booger, whatever that was, on national television. But this officially gets first place. What the fuck? And I keep going back and forth. On one moment, I feel disgusted. And on the next moment, I feel um, just nauseated. And then the next moment, I feel ashamed of myself for talking about this on the podcast, but I couldn't help myself. He took his mom to see a porn called Deep Throat. Now, let's just here uh, take a moment to mull this over. Let's accept that he was a naive 18-year-old who didn't think that an X-rated movie called Deep Throat would be a little awkward to watch with your mom, but his mom, who has children, she didn't put two and two together and think, Ooh, what's this movie my boy Hickenlooper's taking me to see called Deep Throat? (laughs) She didn't connect the dots? And... (laughs) Imagine what's going through her head as she's watching this movie, probably thinking, oh my god, <laughs> this, <laughs> this is what <laughs> Hickenlooper's gonna beat his meat to, ew. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with the world? This is a sick world, ladies and gentlemen, this is a sick, sick world, and I don't know why I'm contributing to this by talking about this, but I think that it's safe to say that this is disqualifying. Um, He should just drop out. Drop out of the race. If you've watched porn with your mom, then I don't think you have anything left to say to us that can win us over. If I found out that Bernie Sanders watched porn with his mom, I... I don't know if I could vote for him. (laughs) Because that's a level of absurd and just, frankly, gross that I don't know that I can get past because I would always associate Bernie with him watching porn with his mom. So, yeah, this is a real story. And John Hickenlooper explained for a couple of minutes how he ended up taking his mom to see a movie called Deep Throat. But hey, she thought that the lighting in the movie 
was good. Yeah. I'm assuming the lighting in most pornographic flip flicks is uh, going to be on point because they have to make sure that they get all the light into the, you know, dark little crevices, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so bad. Well, that's it. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the show. If you want to become a member, you can do so in a number of ways. You can join by clicking join on YouTube. Easy enough. You can go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report, or you can go to our website, humanistreport.com slash support and become a monthly member via PayPal. This is how you get access to um, videos before they even go live on YouTube. I post them right away as soon as I'm done editing them every single night. And this is also how you can participate in monthly live chats with me on camera. And it's not just me on camera. Everyone gets on camera and we all shoot the shit and it's a lot of fun. We have another one coming out uh, next week. So hopefully I'll see some newcomers there. But anyways, that's uh, the episode. I'll talk to you all later. Have a great weekend. You could support the Humanist Report at patreon.com slash humanist report. But trust me, I'd have way more supporters on Patreon if that was my podcast. Sad. <laughs>